Podmortem would like to thank Original Cinematic for sponsoring this week's episode. Original Cinematic is an independent production company that has made it their mission to create, produce, and promote films that are inclusive, honor women, promote the LGBTQIA community, and provide prominent positions and roles to POC actors and filmmakers and promote the films of marginalized and underrepresented populations. These are all things that are extremely important to our podcast as well. Original Cinematic is currently accepting scripts and treatments. Both William and Zena Rush are also available via email or Zoom to discuss writing and provide input and resources to all aspiring writers, free of charge. Their information will be made available in the show notes. Original Cinematic has multiple exciting projects on the horizon. Their next film, Immersion, is slated for release in early 2024. Upcoming films, Fetish, Sweetener, and Run, and their documentary, Drag, the most targeted art form, are anticipated for 2024 releases as well. Their new award-winning film, Group, is currently on the festival circuit. And very generously, Original Cinematic will be providing a link for our patrons to screen the film on Zoom. It is truly an honor to partner with Original Cinematic, and we can't thank them enough for their contribution to our show. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Salutations! Welcome to Pod Mortem. I'm Travis Hunter, joined as always by my co-host, my sister, and my brother-in-law. Hi, I'm Renee Hunter Vasquez. Hi, I'm John Paul Vasquez. This week, we're broadcasting live from the Pie Pan Cafe, discussing the 1988 science fiction horror film, The Blob. This film was directed by Chuck Russell from a screenplay by Russell and Frank Darabont, with a story credit to Irving H. Milgate, based upon the 1958 film by Theodore Simonson and Kay Lineker. Released 30 years after the original, The Blob pays various homages to its predecessor while also growing beyond it in a film more fitting of its time. With impressive special effects and makeup, committed performances from its cast, memorable deaths and set pieces, and masterful misdirections and repeated twists, The Blob would rise above its poor box office performance to attain cult status and is widely considered one of the greatest horror remakes of all time. This film was suggested to us by friends of the show, Lala Thomas, Noreen S., Nisa Hunter, Brittany Ramatar, Megan M., Kevin C. Matt, Jasmine, and Beth Bauer. We'd like to thank them all for their continued support of the show, as well as this suggestion. So, The Blob, what were your first impressions on the film? First off, I'd like to thank everyone who requested this movie, because I also was pushing for us to... uh, (laughs) put this movie on here and i know uh not like you guys didn't want to do it but we ha- we do have the schedule out for you know predicted out and uh we finally put it on there mm-hmm. and man i remembered one thing from this movie when i watched it as a kid and i didn't remember anything else and then watching it uh your sister had suggested she was like watch it she was like watch it watch it she was like i'm telling you you need to sit down and watch this movie don't watch it for the show fresh like that. She was like, sit down and watch it first. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. 
So I did. And I'll thank you again for that because this <laughs> movie is great. Mm-hmm. That was, and then watching it the second time for the show, I noticed something that I guess I misunderstood the first time. And uh, I love this movie. This is a good, solid ass fucking movie. Like, there's, I don't think there's any other way I, for me, that I can describe it other than this is a good, solid horror remake movie. Fucking wonderful shit with this movie. Yeah, I had never seen it before. So, um, like you said, you picked it. It was what you did, Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. I did the ritual. You did the blob. So it's like, okay, this is already wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had never seen it before. I've never seen the original either. I, I have not either. I will say that we both watched the original as kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that last yeah. one. <laughs> I'm glad you remember your time you spent with me. <laughs> um, but I, I learned today that apparently mom and dad would rent this remake and we saw it as kids. I don't remember at all. I, I don't recall that. But then I see mom suggested it as well. She did. <laughs> so it's That's yeah. wild to me because especially as a kid, I feel like this would have stuck out yeah. a lot. Um, but I really loved it. Yeah. I figured that it would be fun. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, it just, it walks such a line with its comedy, with its characters, with its misdirection and the fucking effects. Man. I mean, and it's not even just like, oh yeah, whatever the storyline, but the, it looks really, really great. Like it has a cohesive story. I mean, yeah. the, it's, it's, I really don't know what more you could ask for. It's just, it's so much fun. I had a, excuse me, Anne. Absolute best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute blast with this film. Um, <laughs> I, I will say again, I am with you where I don't remember watching this as a kid, uh-huh. but I am inclined to believe mom. Yeah. But, <laughs> Why were you lying? Yeah, of all the things to lie about, this is strange. Um, but I, I felt like a first time watch watching this mm-hmm. and I was just kind of, constantly impressed by one thing after another everything really just comes together to make such a fantastic film yeah and it's so interesting they really do repurpose a lot of that first film really yeah but then they do their own thing with it and they make it uh, more modern okay i mean which we always say like what why are you remaking something if you're not going to do that yeah yeah now, there is a theme song to the original Blob from 1958 that I really would have liked to hear. <laughs> where they describe what he likes to do. <laughs> that would have been pretty cool in the 80s if, like, uh, Absolutely. The Cure did it or yeah. something. <laughs> I'd love that. Oh, um, oh no. Is that another LL Cool J? Oh, <laughs> I have to play it for you. Yeah, oh, fuck. You guys will laugh out loud. <laughs> But at the time, you know, you would go to the drive-in and you're like, oh, this is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, and I think that's the thing is that in 1958, the things that they did, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now you look back and you have to see it as a time capsule. Yeah. Because you could very easily look back and be like, that's that's Raspberry Jam. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's just putty. Yeah. 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 But um, the things that they do in this film, we were talking off mic where it's like, I don't know how they did that. Yeah. Still. Mm -hmm. And I think that... One thing that really stuck out to me in this film was, aside from the effects, how shocked I was 
several times. Mm-hmm. Yes. In ways that you think this story goes. Like yeah. narratively? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. you've seen this before. Yeah, mm-hmm. for Some sure. Some kind of alien thing crash lands on a planet. Sure. Usually Earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on some planet. On yeah. some planet. And then, you know, the sheriff, etc. Yeah. And the teenage lovebirds, etc. Yeah. yeah. Small town. All yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But what they do with this is so surprising and there were there were two times that I literally I'm type I we were working on a crunched schedule this yes. week. Yeah. So uh, the only time I got to watch it was when I was writing the script for it. And as I'm watching it, I have to stop to go, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then I have to rewind it because I'm like, I can't believe There's what no I'm There's no way. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even believe what I'm seeing right now. Um but yeah, that screenplay is fantastic. And then to see the people involved. Yeah. And what they have done aside from this, what they brought to this, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you have names: Chuck Russell, mm-hmm. Frank Darabont. Yes. Yeah, which I did. I had no idea. No, until I'm writing the intro for this episode. I'm like Frank Darabont. Yeah, I yeah. saw him in the credits, and I was like Frankie D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told your sister. I said, "Hey, we know that name." I said, "I recognize that." Yes, yeah. yes, we do. And I mean, of course, Shawnee Smith. Yeah, Kevin Dillon, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Damon. Yes, so many people. The cast. Yeah, but I think the Frank Darabont thing was the most shocking. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then I come to find out that Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont worked together previously. A few times. Yeah. yeah. Including Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yes. Oh, wow. All Dream right. Warriors. Yeah. Frank Darabont co-wrote that movie. That is <laughs> Hell yeah. That is like so shocking. It's like universe breaking yeah. kind of. But I just, I think that this does exactly what a good remake should do. Mm-hmm. It does its own thing in its own time and its own way. Yeah. But then it also pays such respect to... The original that came before it. Mm-hmm. You think of John Carpenter's The Thing. You think of Cronenberg's The Fly. Yes. And and honestly, those also have incredible special effects that the originals couldn't do at their time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, going back to the original, and speaking right. of the original, um, obviously it came out in 58 and Jack H. Harris was a producer. So he also produced the sequel called Beware exclamation point the blob <laughs> in 1972 and it was widely disliked like people did not appreciate it um i was laughing alone because it was it's all it, everything that i read was like beware the blob also called son of the blob um, <laughs> which already was funny yeah. and then i can't remember where i was reading it might have been wikipedia but it said that the working title was <laughs> chip off the old blob oh yeah. come on what now this is the first movie or the this second? Is the second the second no, Dude, no. <laughs> I was like, did i write this <laughs> Oh I hope God. why why didn't they use it? Uh, yeah, I know it's a it's a drop ball. Um, <laughs> it's a drop blob. <laughs> it's a drop blob. <laughs> but Curse of the Blob was being written, and because nobody liked the second one, it was scrapped. But Jack H. Harris still had the rights to it. Mm. So meanwhile, Chuck Russell is trying to get into directing, but all of his ideas that he's pitching, nobody's trying to hear it at all. So he was like, what if I remade something that's already been established? And so I saw an interview with him where he said that he just went to Jack H. Harris's house. Wow. <laughs> and was like, I, I want to remake the blob. And he was like, okay. I mean, how that's else? That's cool, though. Yeah. Yeah. 
So he got to work on the script with his old friend, Frankie D, because they met, <laughs> I think, doing Hell Night. Yes. But they start shopping it around. So they take it to New Line Cinema and New Line Cinema rejects their script for The Blob. But they were like, why don't you guys do Nightmare Nightmare 3 Dream Warriors? <laughs> so The Blob got put on the back burner. He co-wrote it again with Frankie D. They did Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Right? Yeah. I was like, that's wild. But like you wanted to make a movie and yeah. you made a movie, but he's still like the blob though. Yeah. <laughs> so after Dream Warriors, the blob gets picked up by New World Pictures and <gasps> That's Yeah. Um, Corman. Okay. Yes. Whose credits include Hellraiser and the greatest film of all time, House. Oh. Um <laughs> House is great. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Um, Keep going. And <laughs> <laughs> the timing did seem perfect. Him coming right off of Dream Warriors and the reception of The Fly and mm -hmm. The Thing, you know, why not? So everything that I read was basically saying that they, they just, a year later, they decided to go somewhere else. I cannot find what happened with New World Pictures anywhere. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but they go to Cinema Group Pictures who went bankrupt. Uh. <laughs> So then that's when TriStar came in and saved the day because it's like, I I cannot imagine how Chuck Russell would feel at this point, how many times it's been put on the back burner yeah. and like, oh, now we're going to make it. Well, hold on. Well, now we're going to make it. Hold on. You yeah. know, but um, so now it's a, it's actually getting made. <laughs> Russell took a crew of 150. They filmed it in a small town, Abbeville, Louisiana, and stayed at a lodge the whole time they were filming. From January to May of 1988, they stayed at the lodge. They said that they slept all day and worked all night because so much of it takes part at night. Yeah. What's wild to me is hearing about the turnaround that they talked about on commentary, mm -hmm. where, I mean, January to May, then it comes out in August. Yeah. Yes. And they said that a lot of the special effects didn't work the first time around, and so they have to go into <laughs> post-production, do reshoots, and do reconfigurations of all these effects. Yeah. I'm just breathing down your neck this deadline. Knowing all of that and seeing what we ended up with. Dude. Yeah. It, it makes it even more impressive mm -hmm. because they wanted a summer release. Like, that's what they were pushing for. Yeah. So, like you said, it comes out in August. Mm. Some sources say that the budget was $19 million, but I've seen Russell very, very insistent that it was only 10 that they made really? this for $10 million. Yeah. I kept, I saw the same thing and I was kind of confused at where, because even in Fangoria, they said $19 million and everything else was kind of disputing it. Yeah. He huh. was like, it was 10, but they only made eight. What? Yeah, Which shocking, I know. dude. Yeah. Yeah. So I was curious and I looked up ever since we did um an American Werewolf in Paris and we realized that it came out the same day as Jackie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of been like when you talk about box office, I'm like, well, what else was there at the time? Right. And so I look it up and they it's it's not fair. Okay. <laughs> um I just wrote down a few things, but number one was cocktail. At the at the at the back side. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah. But also, Die Hard. Oh. No. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Oh. A Nightmare on Elm Street Four. Okay. Coming to America. Oh yeah. And Big. Oh wow. Really? Yes. Oh yeah. You you're you're out of there. Though. Isn't Dude. that like wild? Yeah. You dive into some of these years and you're like just kind of blown away. Yeah. Yes. We were talking about 94 with uh, Shawshank, Pulp Fiction and Forrest, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's just kind of, 
I I will say obviously that this film deserved better. Yes. Obviously, it eventually found its audience, but the fact that in 88, Mm -hmm. people were like, "Mm," because the reviews were mixed. Yeah. And I think for a film like this, at that time, you think of the thing, it was released and everybody was like, ew. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean. (laughs) You're right. I forgot about that. Well, the time, though, it's not like this was made some years before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a 30-year-old remake, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, I mean, it's a recognizable property. Yeah. What? Russell had said on commentary is he kind of made it as if this TriStar thing was a blessing and a curse. Okay. The blessing and the fact that it's finally this fucking film's getting made. Yeah. But the curse came when in post-production, TriStar gets new ownership. Ah. And so these new people in charge are really, really excited about their projects, their pet projects. Oh, man. And so the people that were in charge that were excited about the blob, yeah. maybe these people aren't as excited. Okay. And so maybe it doesn't get the amount of marketing that it should. Yeah. Or maybe it doesn't get that push that they assumed that it would. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's 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 studios, man. Yeah. It's just so unfair. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioning 94, this is kind of off topic. But, right. <laughs> uh, Darabont did Shawshank. Yeah. And also I believe in 94, Chuck Russell did The Mask. Wild. I know. <laughs> the mask is great. It is. <laughs> now, before we devour this film, we would like to issue a warning for spoilers. Pod Mortem is a very in-depth podcast, and in thoroughly discussing horror films, we have no choice but to spoil a thing or two. If you don't wish to be spoiled, please go watch the film, then come back and enjoy the show. If you've already seen the film or don't care about spoilers, let's dissolve into it. So the film begins with eerie synth, and the opening credits appear in black amidst a smoky blue and purple haze. Congealing, misshapen, and a blur, before focusing and becoming clear, we get the title with rising tension in the score. The Blob. I had put, okay, literally nothing has happened yet, and I'm already into the vibes. (laughs) Like, this whole setup, I was like, okay, I'm in. I, I liked it for some reason. It seemed out of time. Like, this seems like a late 90s credits. It, yeah. You know, okay. was reminding me of... Event Horizon? Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I stole your thunder. No, 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 no. I can see that for sure. But when, where we're going, I was thinking the faculty. All right. Yeah. Now that you, you say know, that. And maybe that's why I was like, I don't, whatever happens, <laughs> if, they're throwing, I'm here. if they're throwing water in their face. Whatever, yeah. whatever. I'm here for it. <laughs> But we dip down from the blackness of space to reveal the planet Earth under the stars and the light of the sun as the credits continue. We travel through clouds, settling in on the town of Arborville, California. As we reach the street level on a sunny day, we see storefronts and cars lining the downtown streets. Awnings ripple in the breeze as leaves catch the wind before we dissolve to the exterior of the Victor Theater, boasting a matinee over the weekend. A nearby store has an advertisement in the window for a sale on skis for the upcoming season, and a sign outside of a bar urges residents to think snow. An adorable black and white cat crosses our path outside the Rexhall Drugs before we're taken to a fountain just across from an old church. The only thing I have to knock about this film is we do not see this cat again. That is a shame. <laughs> no, you're right. We don't. A shame. But you know what? Maybe it's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. With the track record of animals in the yeah. show. Yeah. All right. But in low-angle shots, we find a large white building with columns at the entrance and marble statues of angels before the camera rises above a foggy cemetery and into the trees, where it reaches the crowded bleachers of a football game. I 
fucking loved this little transition from uh-huh. what's this spooky abandoned almost town mm-hmm. to oh here's everybody it that was great I, I thought that it was very interesting to do it this way. Yeah. And to see all these locations that will become important later. Yeah. yeah. Also the snow. Yeah. That. Yeah. I noticed that. And then later people were like, man, this heat or whatever. And I was like, why are y'all talking about the damn weather so much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, because, <laughs> You're getting mad instead of. <laughs> Bring your jacket. Why the no, fuck yeah. are we talking about the weather so much? <laughs> All I could think, I seen it, and I was like, oh, all right, think more snow, dude. You know what I mean? I was like, oh. If you're going to do a snow impression, yeah. think, think more snow, dude. Dude. <laughs> I, I heard on commentary, the cinematographer was Mark Irwin, and he had mentioned that he wanted to establish the entire town in daylight. Ah, okay. So that the future scenes that we see future maybe creatures or yeah, whatever yeah. What have um, you? it would be scary for the audience because we already know these locations oh okay very nice it's kind of brilliant not only establishing the town in this way but establishing what kind of town this is yeah the way that we're introduced to these characters because like you said it's like oh everybody's here yeah like i already have the vibe of this town i already get like the priorities and shit you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you can already get the feel because everybody's at this game and then when we meet people later on it's like everybody just feels authentic like it feels like a real small town Mm -hmm. i did want to talk a little bit about mark Irwin because his filmography is kind of wild okay so he of course did the blob Mm -hmm. but he also did the fly with cronenberg oh all right and also with cronenberg he did the brood scanners videodrome and the dead zone Damn. damn he also worked with wes craven Oh, okay. He did New Nightmare, Vampire in Brooklyn, and Scream. <laughs> Holy shit. Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I laughed because I, you know, these, it's obvious you're like, oh, you're genre. Yeah. Cinematographer. He worked with the Farrelly brothers and Todd Phillips. <laughs> what the hell? So the same guy who shot The Fly shot There's Something About Mary. Yeah. And Old School. God damn, oh hell, God. yeah. <laughs> Just wild. Yeah. <laughs> but at the football game, the fans cheer and the band plays as the Huskies, the hometown team, scores a touchdown from a reception by Paul Taylor, played by Donovan Leach Jr. As Paul returns to the bench, he catches the eye and earns the applause of Meg Penny, a cheerleader played by Shawnee Smith. My jaw dropped. Yeah. Um, I was like, can somebody please pull her to the side and warn her about the future? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i your sister was like does somebody look familiar and i was like yeah but i'm not i'm not sure and she was like are you sure you can't tell <laughs> and i'm like no and then she told me she was like it's amanda from saw mm-hmm. and i could not unsee it i was like well, well, yeah. it's her. well no i know but now i just see amanda i was like oh you're just running around trying to kill people <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to <laughs> Well, yeah, she wasn't fair. No, yeah. she wasn't fair. She, she wasn't fair. <laughs> Damn, no. she does an am- everybody yes. did an yeah. amazing yeah. job. I, I think that's one thing is the cast in this film we talked about in the intro. Yeah. It's just amazing. 
seeing her because it's it's so funny of all the interviews that i read whenever we were doing saw mm-hmm. i just remember james wan is like oh yeah and i had a crush on shawnee smith when i was growing up it's from the blob yeah <laughs> that's where it came from okay and so this kind of directly leads to i love that yeah. the saw films very nice all right but i also interestingly with james wan i did read in the early 2000s that james wan was approached to remake a remake of the blob Huh. But he declined, and then it went to Rob Zombie, who worked a lot on it, mm-hmm. and then it didn't. It just didn't happen. Listen, hmm. that would be fucking wild. I'd watch it. <laughs> Rob Zombie's The Blob. Yeah, I, I give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna like, have The Blob. You're yeah. gonna have Sherry Moon's ass. I mean, it, it's gonna be great. The and Blob's a lot of like, fucks. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was gonna Fuck say. this town. <laughs> <laughs> it's just The Blob. Yeah. <laughs> Who wrote this? Yeah, not this shit again. (laughs) (laughs) Something very interesting I did learn from Shawnee Smith did a commentary track. Mm -hmm. She had said that she actually went to the prom with Donovan Leach. Uh, Really? Yeah. That's adorable. So she didn't know that he was cast in this. He didn't know she was cast in this. They both grew up in (laughs) Hollywood. Oh, okay. And so it was just kind of wild. Yeah. And that's built-in chemistry, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it works. Mm-hmm. And it lasts the whole film. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is really a love story. Yes. <laughs> Between Paul and Meg. <laughs> <laughs> From start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> but seated next to Paul is Scott Jeske, played by Ricky Paul Golden. Scott makes note of the attention that Meg is giving Paul, And as he takes a sip from his straw, he tells Paul that it's clear she wants his body, so he should ask her out. Still catching his breath from the previous play, Paul says that Meg is dating some guy called Pulver, who we never see or hear from. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought this was going to be some kind of conflict later. Yeah. Yes. It's it's never mentioned again. I assumed Paul was going to ask her out and then he was going to be pulverized. By Pulver. By Pulver. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't even see him. Nope. Pulver is not played by anyone. (laughs) Maybe Pulver is the blob. I don't know. Oh, shit. (laughs) That's the only thing that would make sense later. Um, But Scott assures him that that isn't going anywhere and that he should just go for it. Paul says that he's going to ask Meg out when the time is right. But Scott is over it. And Paul reiterates as he stares longingly at a smiling and cheerful Meg. Timing is everything. It made me laugh because he's like, dude, you should ask her out. And he's like, I am going to ask her out when the time's right. And then he goes, bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he agreed. You just yeah. told him. <laughs> just because he's not on your timetable? Yeah, no. <laughs> Chill out. But their attention is drawn back to the game when their defense forces a fumble on the opposing team. They jump to their feet with a shout of pride in their team as they return to the field on offense. The quarterback snaps the ball and Paul runs his route, the ball sailing through the air in slow motion and finding him right on target. Unfortunately, several defenders quickly push him out of bounds, tackling him over a table and spilling a large container of sports drink in the process. We're not sponsored by Gatorade. I'm not not saying it. Sports (laughs) drink. Miscellaneous sports drink. (laughs) (laughs) Reptile (laughs) thing. Anonymous sports drink. Florida style (laughs) sports drink. Is the other aid um, strength? (laughs) It's fight milk. Yes. They spill fight milk milk everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It coats the field. (laughs) 
But when they climb off of him, Paul stares up to the sky in a daze, and Meg walks over to check on him. As she eyes him concerned, Paul asks her if she has any plans for tonight, and she smiles as he collects himself. This is the perfect timing. He did yeah. it. Because he almost died. Mm-hmm. He almost <laughs> drowned in fight milk. <laughs> but now he can fight like a crow, so yeah. <laughs> that's going to come in handy later on. Oh, yeah. And we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but in the next scene, the camera pans across the dilapidated wooden structure of an old bridge to find Brian Flagg, played by Kevin Dillon. So firstly, yes, this is Matt Dillon's brother. And... <sighs> <laughs> I will say he he was also on Entourage, a show that I watched when I was 13 and should not have been watching. I don't know if I should be watching it now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was on that. Yeah, I thought you were going to throw me under the bus. I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting yeah, to that. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching Entourage at like 13 years old and then uh, Nay sees Kevin Dillon mm-hmm. on screen, Johnny Drama. And uh, the show is probably terrible. Honestly, <laughs> um, but thirteen-year-old me was like, "Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah." Um, but <laughs> the thing is, she sees him on screen, uh-huh. and she goes, "I he's trying too hard to be Matt Dillon for my taste." I was like, <laughs> "I was like, well, that's his brother. What? He uh, looks what yeah. an asshole." Too. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were like the president of the Matt Dillon fan Listen, club. You know why I liked Matt Dillon? Huh? From something about Mary. Uh, which, there this we go. So we're back. Yeah, uh, right. that's why I liked him. <laughs> all right. That was a hyperfixation movie. And again, probably should not have been watching that either. Yeah. But um, yeah, you were like, well, that's his brother. Why would I even say that? Like, what I don't a know. Bitchy th- <laughs> <laughs> what a bitchy thing to say. <laughs> 15-year-old you? <laughs> well, he looks just like his brother. He does. <laughs> he does. Hence why I thought, you know. No, mm-hmm. yeah. You know. But something else to talk about. Yeah. And I heard on commentary, and I got to be honest, I completely disagree. Chuck Russell said, obviously, his name is Brian Flagg. Right. Yes. F-L-A-G-G. Yes, double G. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the guy, Joe Lynch, that was running the commentary, mm-hmm. he asked Russell, he's like, is this a reference to Stephen King? Yeah. And Russell was like, oh, no, it's just uh, a coincidence. But no. So yeah, I was not involved in the making of this film, but I'm, I got to tell you that that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you got a flag with a double G and this was co-written by Frankie D. Exactly. There's, the def- there's no fucking way. There's literally no way yeah. that... There's no way. No. And I was just reading about the Dollar Baby program. Yeah, yeah. With that being disbanded this month. Yeah. Um, I was reading about old ones, and Frank Darabont made a Dollar Baby in 1980. Oh, damn. Frank Darabont is a constant reader. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, look how many adaptations he's done. Mm-hmm. There's no... I'm sorry. You cannot convince me, I Mr. Think, Russell, yeah. <laughs> to go writer and director. <laughs> I think you might be wrong. I think Russell looked away when Frank Darabont... <laughs> <laughs> he's like yeah, I'll, you don't worry about the names I I'll do it. the names I got it <laughs> he's like Meg Pennywise <laughs> <laughs> what yeah you well can't. we gotta shorten that that's well there that's, is <laughs> that's too much there is a Fran in the stand oh. and there's a Fran in this there was shit that I was like I'm probably reading hmm. too much into this but knowing that Darabont was involved yeah and being a constant reader myself mm-hmm. maybe I'm doing too much but i see some i see some shit <laughs> well i'm i'm not that much of a 
big as reader as you are. But Ivan, I told yeah. your sister when I was watching, I was like, flag. She was like, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, All right. So you saying that, I don't appreciate it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and just a fun fact, but Shawnee Smith is in the stand. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. So, you know, doesn't have anything to do with that, but. Hmm, but interesting. Yeah. But Brian rests atop his motorcycle, clad in leather and smoking a cigarette. He steps off the bike, downing a beer and tossing the can into the chasm between the two sides of the bridge. A sly smile creeping across his face, Brian has an idea. He mounts his bike, whipping it in the opposite direction, and behind his back, the can man, played by Billy Beck, rises up from the shrubs to watch whatever Brian is planning. But Brian speeds off before flipping a 180 to face the bridge again. As he grips his handlebars, revving the engine with a twist, we get shots of the crowd at the football game chanting, go, go, go. I was like, is this dude really about to try to jump Springfield Gorge? <laughs> <laughs> to the same result. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not that far. But I, yeah. but I thought the same. I it's was like, too that, far. That's pretty dangerous, Bart. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I love the hair, though. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to talk about the hair. All right. Um, because Kevin Dillon hated it. That's not his hair. Those are extensions. Yeah. And Chuck Russell insisted on them and Kevin Dillon hated them. And in a um, Q&A that I watched, Chuck Russell was like, I still think that to this day he hasn't forgiven me for those. Oh, they wow. said that after they made it, he was telling everybody, that's not my hair. That's not my real hair. That's not my real hair. Like he hated but it. But wasn't that the style at the time? Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, Shawnee Smith, he insisted on hers too. Her extensions. I never like, would have guessed. They no, looked a... These characters, I guess, looked a specific way in his head, and that's what we were gonna do. I like it. I think it gives to the time. It yeah, feels, it for sure yeah. does. Yeah. On commentary, because of the leather jacket and the motorcycle, they were calling him Rebel Without a Blob, <laughs> 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 which is <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I bet he didn't like that. Oh no! Probably, <laughs> no, he's like, got this fucking hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this better be a hit. <laughs> But Brian eyes the jump, which is intercut with shots of the cheerleaders chanting in unison along with the fans of the football game. His hair in the breeze, just as he nears the bridge, Brian's engine starts to sputter. Worry washes over his face as he wipes out, tumbling ass over tea kettle after his bike to the dirt below the bridge. The can man watches, his dog at his side, laughing and offering Brian a sincere round of applause when he looks up at him. Brian collects himself unoffended as the can man empties out what was left in Brian's can of beer, gathers it, and makes his exit through the shrubs. So already we just met Brian Mm -hmm. and you kind of can already understand the role that he plays in this community. Yes. But I did notice that this is the beginning of a trend of Brian interacting with people that aren't, I guess, cops. (laughs) (laughs) This this man, there's multiple instances where everybody seems to like him when it's a one-on-one thing. Yeah. And he's very nice. I thought he was going to get up and be like, what the fuck are you looking at? That's what I thought. He, yeah. he like, I mean, I feel like already I'm like, oh, you're misunderstood. And yeah. this is our yeah. first meeting of him. And the way that they've set it up, they really set it up as Paul and Meg are like the, yes. pro- the protagonist. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He's going to be like their adversary. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's going to team up with the blob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's Henry Bowers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Seriously. His hair is going to be white and he's going to be yes. <laughs> talking to the moon. More Stephen King. <laughs> you know? But as the acoustic guitar of a country song begins to play, we're taken to the Pie Pan Cafe, 
where sitting at the bar is Sheriff Herb Geller, played by Jeffrey DeMunn. I was so excited. Mm -hmm. Yes. I had no idea that he was in this. Um, I know that he, I was reading, uh, I think that he has collaborated on every single thing that Frank Darabont has done. Wow. TV and film. I think that that's what I read. Hell yeah. Which Whoa. he's great. Yeah. He's great. And I've never seen him this young. No. I'm so used to seeing him a certain way. Yes. Yeah. Um, even, I mean, The Green Mile. Yeah. yeah. Shawshank. Shawshank, The mm. Walking Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, The Mist. Yes. Yeah. Um, I even think he was in that show Mob City that Frank Darabont did. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted that show to be so successful because AMC did Frank Dirty. Don't they? Didn't they always? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was, as well, is when you talk about their working relationship, mm -hmm. this is where it started. I love that. Oh, okay. And it was all circumstance because Jeffrey Demun was found by the casting director. Right. It wasn't as if Frank Darabont knew him previously him. or yeah, anything. Yeah. But um, there, like you said about this loyalty, because even when AMC did Frankie D Dirty. Jeffrey DeMunn demanded to be written out of the, the Walking Dead. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah. He's like, that's my okay. dude. Yeah. yeah. That's why it was because anybody who watched it. That, yeah. that season of The Walking Dead with Dale, that was really abrupt. Yeah. Yes. And oh, not, yeah, we were yeah. pissed. Not how it happens in not the comics. At all. So it's uh, loyalty. Mm -hmm. But across the counter from Herb is Fran Hewitt, played by Candy Clark. Now, Candy Clark, we've talked about kind of recently. Mm -hmm. Academy Award nominated actress for American Graffiti. Okay. But she was also in The Man Who Fell to Earth in 76 with David Bowie. She was in Twin Peaks in 2017. Mm -hmm. And she was in Zodiac in 2007. <laughs> I was like, we just, yeah. 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 Well, I guess not just anymore. Shit. Well, it feels like it was yesterday. It does. <laughs> in my heart, the Zodiac episode. <laughs> but her name? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just Interesting. Throw, just throwing it out there. He's doing something. <laughs> you yeah. Know? But Herb jokes that it looks like Fran has lost all of her business to the game tonight, but she assures him that when they're finished screaming their heads off at the stadium, they'll be in here like a flood. I do think a line like that is kind of interesting as yeah. far as a flood and the, the way that something moves later. Oh, mm. all right. But as she pours Herb another glass of sweet tea, Fran admits that it's good to see the town excited about something nonetheless. Herb agrees, saying that it's been a lean year for most of the citizenry, but Fran replies with optimism, reminding him that with ski season about to start, the tourists will be here soon enough. But Herb changes the subject, because there's actually a new band playing at the Tin Palace tonight, and he says that they're supposed to be pretty good. He asks Fran if she likes country music. Aww. <laughs> Fran turns to him with a smile, seemingly surprised that Herb is asking her on a date. But unfortunately, she says that she doesn't know if she can make it because she's stuck here on her shift. Herb understands, albeit somewhat sullenly, but upon noticing a crowd of high schoolers approaching the front of the diner, Fran calls out to warn the cook in the kitchen. The kids pile into the restaurant, cheering and hollering after their team's victory, and Herb stands up to put on his jacket as Fran writes him his check. As she hands it to him, he gives her a business card, telling her that if she is able to get any free time, to give him a call at the station. Fran smiles, clearly smitten, and replying a simple okay in response. But as he turns to leave, he looks down at his check to notice that there is no charge, but a note written in cursive at the bottom. I'm off at 11. Okay. I love this so much. <laughs> yeah. And I can't wait to watch their wedding later. Oh, yeah. yeah. And this is a second love story. Yeah. Yes. That we'll see through. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
But as Fran tends to her new batch of customers, Herb tears off the bottom of the ticket, overjoyed. And it really is such a sweet little moment. Yeah. It's so cute. And and even this, it lends to like what you said earlier, babe. I when I used to cook at night uh, after homecoming or shit like that or our ASU games, mm-hmm. man, we'd get you fucking know. slaughtered. It's like yeah, it's dead right now, but oh, yeah. game's over, and then it's yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see the fucking glass of water like Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're coming. Like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but outside. Brian is hitched a ride back to town, stepping off the back of an old truck and into the street as it speeds off. As more teens head towards the diner on foot and in vehicles, Brian notices the sheriff leaving the diner and hightails it across the street. I was like, oh no, the sheriff, the bad boy's natural enemy. (laughs) (laughs) He hides on the other side of the municipal building, like when Bart was playing hooky from school. (laughs) He smokes a cigarette nonchalantly, but in a matter of seconds, Herb pulls up in his police cruiser, offering Brian a congratulations. Answering Brian's confusion, Herb tells him that he hears Brian has a birthday coming up, which means no more juvenile hall for him. Taking off his sunglasses, Herb reminds Brian that if he messes up now, he'll be in the majors. Brian smirks as Herb puts his glasses back on, telling Brian that he'll see him around before driving off. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, I mean, we, I understand that there's probably a reputation thing, but in this moment, he's done nothing. Yeah. So you don't need to be like, you're almost 18, you fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but what's wild is there are other times in this film where people are like, and Brian, flag. Yeah. yeah. That fucking what miss. What did he do? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of want to know what he did. Yeah. yeah. Because every, now, but like you're saying, when he's one-on-one with Fran and uh, the old man in the Elkins Grove. Yeah. And, and there's and another person yeah, in a minute. Yeah. That we're about to meet. He seems very cordial and everybody likes him. Yeah. But it's just weird. He must have done something that only affected a small group of people. (laughs) (laughs) Also, before we move on, um, him being about to turn 18, Mm -hmm. that kind of tracks like these people actually look like they could be in school. Oh, yeah. I will just say. (laughs) because <laughs> you were showing us pictures earlier. <laughs> i look it was very strange watching the blob and them calling a clearly like 35 year old steve mcqueen kid yeah <laughs> saying that he's supposed to be 17 years old and a high schooler yeah and i'm like his kid might go to high school that, yeah, that, yeah yeah no shit yeah, that's but, that's yeah the consensus it's just it's strange like how because he wasn't even 30 right no, I, I had to look it up i think he was 28 maybe but, if everybody was like 60 around him then like oh yeah, just like comparatively, yeah, yeah. what is this grease it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird because i feel like i don't know like we Everybody ages differently now. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know Honestly, how to explain no, it. If, yeah. you, if you look at an old yearbook, you're like, what? Yeah. Everybody looks like they were in their 30s and 40s. Well, they were living pretty, pretty yeah, hard. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't know when I found out how old Pat Patterson and Jared Briscoe were. I was like, damn, they're only 28? <laughs> <laughs> they look like that. Yeah. <laughs> Like my, like my grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think when you were born, they gave you a bottle and then a cigarette. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> times are really different. Gave, gave a cigar to the dad, a cigar to the baby. Yeah. And the, yeah. 
<laughs> but those dudes have been were in wrestling. I remember as a kid growing up, and they always looked old. Mm-hmm. They always just looked older. It's constantly. Just, it's it's strange, and it is wild because you see Steve McQueen as he goes on, and he doesn't really look that much different than he did in the Blob. Yeah, no, he yeah. Just, so I mean, I but don't know. He, he doesn't look. Like 17 doesn't yeah, look 17 no. at least kevin dylan and shawnee smith yeah, yeah. i th- they feel accurate like it feels j- like it makes sense right i wasn't distracted watching like it, yeah no. and that's the thing because sometimes it really can be because yeah. it's like stop like you can't just put on a backpack and no <laughs> now you're 16 how like, do you do fellow kids <laughs> <laughs> But Brian continues on foot to Moss Garage, stepping inside the dimly lit establishment, past mechanics and works in progress to chat with Moss Woodley, the owner played by Bo Billingsley. Now, Bo Billingsley is a character actor that has been in a ton of stuff. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I remember him from was he was one of the lead detectives at the beginning of Halloween H2O. Oh, (laughs) wow. It was uh, that montage with the not not Donald Pleasant (laughs) speaking over it. It was an alright impression. I can't I can't wait to get there. It could have been a better impression. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. <laughs> but I do remember him from that because he was the one that was saying that he lived there whenever Michael did his business in sixty three. Did his mm. business. He did his business. He did. Um that one will be so fun to cover. Oh yeah. The movie is wild. I can't wait. I remember very little from I remember stuff, but then I get them mixed up, and you're like, "No, that's not that one." Because you think of Resurrection a lot. Well, yeah, (laughs) you can tell which one I clearly watched more. (laughs) Only one of them has Busta Rhymes in it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) this is true. But seeing Brian covered in dirt after his tumble, Moss rightfully tells him that he looks like hell. But Brian shrugs it off as a fashion statement. Moss, with a cigar in his mouth, tells him the only fashion statement he's making right now is, "I look like hell." He's like, it's the mullet, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't my idea. I didn't want it. <laughs> but as he washes up at a nearby sink, Brian shares that his bike is broken down at Elkins Grove and sheepishly asks if he can borrow Moss's ratchet set. Moss doesn't say no exactly, but as he wipes his hands of oil, he tells Brian that the summit has him overhauling six snowmobiles, three snowcats, and two flatbed snowmakers by Monday. Brian doesn't understand the rush, saying that it must be 70 degrees outside today. But Moss, snagging a couple of beers from inside of a snowmaker, giving it a blast of cold air before handing one off to Brian, says that winter will be here before they know it, tearing through the town without apology. That looked cool. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I'm like, why are y'all talking about the weather so fucking much? Well, yeah, you know, (laughs) it's a plot device. Yeah. (laughs) I I have to admit, I was like, whenever he did the thing with the beer, I was like, what kind of futuristic cooler is this? Oh, he's abusing somebody else's (laughs) property. Got it, got it. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. But Brian isn't buying that winter's on its way, recounting the lack of snow the past couple of years and keeping it real, remarks that the town is ready to fold. Well, Well, yeah. I mean... But optimistically, Moss promises that this year is going to be different, giving his word and joking that Brian is going to wish that his piece of shit motorcycle was one of these snowmobiles. But Brian cuts through the conversation, asking again to borrow the ratchet set, even offering his services for a couple of hours over the weekend to lighten Moss's workload. Moss thinks about it for a moment, and upon removing the cigar from his mouth, gives Brian permission to use his 12 ratchet set on the condition that he returns it with all 12. He's a real one, man. Pass me a beer, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Brian assures him he will, and as he exits, 
tells Moss that he owes him one, but Moss reminds Brian that he already owes him too damn many. I was like, I like him. Yeah. I liked their interaction. I I I just thought this was very sweet. Yeah. But you also get a feel again, like we were talking about earlier, Moss respects Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a you're you I know you're a kid, but you're you understand a little more, you're a little more grown. You're you know what I mean? You got a little more snap to you. Yeah. So yeah, you probably shouldn't be giving this kid a beer, but I mean <laughs> No, I didn't even yeah. think about that. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I mean <laughs> That's I illegal. It. Yeah. No. Like, I like him. <laughs> Supplying well, alcohol uh, to minors. Yeah. Again though. Checks all hey, the <laughs> you can tell that they have a previous relationship. Yeah. That they they're familiar with each other. He's helped him work before he knows what he's doing if he's like look dude i'm gonna help you let me borrow this i'll be right back and he trusts him look this is what i'm giving you bring my shit back okay cool thank you i gotta go i will say there is a bit of conflicting because you could say that it seems almost as if brian is graduated he's done with school yeah because the way he acts and the way he is Mm -hmm. or that he dropped out of school that's kind of what i was thinking but to because i mean the way that the sheriff was on his ass about turning 18 yeah and then he's (laughs) i don't know it just seems there is a little yeah you know i don't know (laughs) not gonna knock the film (laughs) (laughs) or anything (laughs) but that night in a junkyard the can man flattens the day's cans with his boot against a tree stump by the light of a fire. He has like a pan strapped to his foot. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. I was yeah. like, work smarter, not harder, dude. Because oh, yeah. he had to put in no energy to crush those. And I, I kept thinking, I was like, man, I, I know this man's face from somewhere. He's plays, I guess, a recurring character on Always Sunny. He's smoky. I was like, I don't remember who what? you are, but yeah, I was like, what the fuck? Could he have been in the the duop group? <laughs> no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't hockey. I know that. <laughs> but yeah, I to go back. I thought he was somebody else, uh-huh. and then when I looked and I was looking through his credits, how many episodes was it? A lot. Uh, it might have been just like one or two. Oh, okay. But I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I was like, you were on Sunny. <laughs> That's wild. That's hilarious. I got to go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But his dog resting in the background, he tosses the cans into a nearby receptacle. But suddenly something nearby agitates the dog who lifts his head and begins to bark. The can man notices something high up above a bright light in the sky. It hovers distantly emitting an orange glow spinning violently before crashing towards the earth. It flies past the can man, its tail a burning flame as it lands among the trees and a smash of smoldering sparks. The can man stares in disbelief as his dog whines and barks before snagging an axe from the tree stump and rushing off in the direction of the crash site. Sir, you're running the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no way. No. 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 Jordy Barrel. That's, yeah. that's your fucking. Literally all I was thinking. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I'd call somebody maybe. Yeah, the college to see how much they pay yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> the Department of no, Meteors. No. <laughs> I call like, it meteor shit. Yeah. <laughs> Not a like cent less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but back in town at the drugstore, with the bell tower ringing loudly outside, Paul and Scott walk the aisles in their letterman jackets. Scott asks Paul for $5, promising to pay him back tomorrow. When Paul is hesitant, Scott reminds him that he's not the only one with a date tonight, claiming that he's going to score with some girl called Vicky and saying that he needs to invest in a little protection. 
Blurry in the background and dealing with customers at the register is the pharmacist, played by Art LaFleur, who calls out to the guys to hurry up because it's closing time. So me and your sister had talked at one at one point. She was like, man, I feel like that guy looks familiar. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I, I think so. And then I didn't really think much of it. And then when I started when I watched it the second time, I was like, I do know him from somewhere. So he plays Babe Ruth in the Sandlot. Really? Yeah. Wild. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he's in Cobra with Stallone. Mm -hmm. uh, he's somebody in Mal He plays Fred and Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, he also, and I was like, okay, he's in The Invisible Woman from 1988. Really? Oh. Yeah. I was like, okay, he's dude. Got, he looks so familiar. The yeah. second you see him, you're like, I know I've seen you in shit. Like multiple things. I think it was Shawnee Smith said on the commentary track about this film is just filled with character actors. Yeah. yeah. Like nearly everybody that isn't Kevin Dillon and her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But Paul pulls a crumpled $5 bill from his pocket, which Scott snags swiftly before strutting over to the pharmacist, requesting a pack of condoms and breath spray. I was just a little floored. Um, I was like, what a time to be alive that you can get a pack of condoms and Banaka for $5 and get changed back. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. The, the, the dollar yeah. has taken yeah. a dip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, don't be silly. Protect your willy. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Is that a Podmore and Podmore Yeah. <laughs> Be safe. But after trying on a pair of sunglasses, Scott notices Reverend Meeker, played by Del Close, standing behind him. So, as Nay was saying earlier, the Reverend was straight up at the football game earlier. Yeah, I knew when I seen him in the stands, I was like, we're going to come back <laughs> yeah. to you. You're dressed too interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to talk about Del Close for a second. Okay. They had talked about him on commentary and they were saying that he was like this prolific improv master and teacher. Okay. And so I wanted to look into that and I looked at his Wikipedia page and I saw that he did a lot of improv at the Second City, like all these well-known places. Mm -hmm. But a lot of his students went on to pretty prolific careers as well okay i have a list of about nine students and i'm so excited yeah <laughs> it's fucking wild we have stephen colbert okay john belushi damn john candy chris farley amy sedaris amy poehler gilda radner and bob odenkirk holy damn. shit now and these are that's just a selection yeah there's tons of people God damn. Holy shit. Like it's so he he really is exactly as they described. Yeah. yeah. That is amazing. Wow. I thought I thought it was interesting because he was in um Beware the Blob. Okay. Oh, hey. shit. From uh 72 or whenever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm blanking. <laughs> so he's got blob experience. He's got yeah. blob experience. Um, but his credit was like hobo wearing eye patch or something. Wow. So he's a lot more prominent in this. Mm -hmm. And he was also uh, a teacher in Ferris Bueller. Oh, <laughs> just, just very good. Out there. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> but the Reverend calls Scott by his first and last, applauding his performance in the game today. Scott thanks him, but after a bit of an awkward silence, he asks the Reverend how he's doing. After lamenting his hay fever acting up, the Reverend tells Scott that he hasn't seen him lately for Sunday services, which is exactly when the pharmacist returns with two packages of condoms for Scott, asking his preference, ribbed or regular. 
There's so much going on right now. <laughs> First of all, you shaming me into not going to church does not make me want to go to church. Yeah, true. But also the pharmacist did not need to do him like that in front of the priest. But honestly, just turn to the priest and be like, God would not want me to go in raw. Oh, like, yeah. Jesus. Look at my options. Oh, he's, yeah. He's <laughs> a little decorum, right, Whichever please. one has a cross on him. So they have <laughs> what kind of Jesus he is? <laughs> He's Can a man of the, the rough design. <laughs> <laughs> a man of the latex. Yeah. Wrap it up. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and dude's got a birthday coming up as we <laughs> as we were talking about off mic. We can't. But Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> we shouldn't be. <laughs> we shouldn't be saying that. Don't be disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> but Scott goes for the ribbed. But make sure that the Reverend knows that the condoms are actually for Paul. He claims that Paul is planning on sleeping with some girl, and Scott insisted that he take precautions. The pharmacist asks why Paul doesn't pay for him himself then, and Scott just claims that he had to drag Paul here as it is. He's so irresponsible. You can't even say that it's my money. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just gotta throw no. me under every fucking Like, bus. oh no, he's buying them. <laughs> <laughs> Give my five dollars. <laughs> this dude sucks. But from across the store, Paul calls out annoyed, telling Scott that he can't keep this girl waiting. Under his breath, as he hands Scott his purchased goods, the pharmacist says that Paul doesn't need condoms. He needs a muzzle. (laughs) I mean, are you just not happy that he's using protection at all? That part. Well, I, I think that he's, well, Paul's kind of acting like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Out of context. You know, yeah, yeah, if, you, does, if he, you don't know anything except for what Scott's telling you. Yeah. yeah, the sad part is he just really likes her and yeah. he's excited to see her. Like, And they're for you. Yeah, yeah. he sucks. Yeah, he he's does. terrible. And yeah. he's even oh. more terrible later on. Yeah. yeah. But back in the forest, the light of the moon beams through the trees as the can man makes his way through the greenery. This shot is, I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way that the light is cast. Yeah. But the score grows tense as he approaches the smoldering embers of the crash site, and dug into the crater is a large meteorite with a sliver carved out of its center. His face lit by the orange glow emitting from it, the can man peers at it even closer. Upon further inspection, he notices something bubbling inside, which shifts position with a gurgle. Meteor shit. <laughs> yeah, like, keep going. Yeah, yeah, continue. Continue. This is enough for the dog who gets the bark out of there. <laughs> the dog's the only one being smart. Yeah, I think even just that, seeing movement in there or mm-hmm. anything, no, I'll be back. I And you saw it come from the sky. Yeah, yeah. But the can man, however, snags a long stick and cautiously dips it into the rock. A gelatinous clump now clutches the end of the stick and when he holds the stick above his head and gazes at it, it begins to pulsate. It was ready to come out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is none of our business. <laughs> no. <laughs> he immediately lowers the stick and watches as it thumps like a heartbeat, thick ooze spilling from it as it suddenly lurches up the stick, seizing the can man's hand as he screams. So this is one of the things like when we're talking about remaking an older film, mm-hmm. there are so many moments like this that are basically exactly what happened in the original. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we just get a different and more detailed and more graphic version of it later. Okay. It's just, it's it's exactly what you want a remake to do. Yeah. So is this kind of how it was found in the original? Basically, yeah. All right. Even with the stick, I remember, and his hand. Oh, oh shit. Cool. All right. 
and the way that it's done in even I, I know I said earlier about the look of the blob in the original but what they did was still pretty impressive for 58 mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's just everything is just improved here because time has passed yeah, yeah. but we quickly cut to the dining room table of the Penny household where Kevin Penny Meg's younger brother played by Michael Kinworthy slurps up red jello from a plate directly with his face this was a great transition. Yes, yeah. that's what I was about to say. That was brilliant. Yeah, you're like, the blob is doing the same shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eddie Beckner, Kevin's friend played by Douglas Emerson, laughs, but Kevin is promptly scolded by Mrs. Penny, his mother played by Sharon Spellman. Kevin says that the face eating is because they're in a hurry to meet some kid called Anthony at the bowling alley. But when Eddie lets it slip that they're also going to the movies, Kevin kicks him under the table. Mrs. Penny asks what movie they're going to see, and Eddie, with no hesitation, tells her, Garden Tool Massacre, calling it your standard slice and dice. Shut <laughs> the fuck up! Well, it's not his mom. He's like, I it don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to see it. Go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go. Yeah. If I say we're going bowling and then reading our Bibles for the rest of the night, mm-hmm. you just nod. Yeah. We know what we're doing. <laughs> You're like, but Kevin, I thought we were going to yeah. Yeah. Shut up! My mom is right there. But you said that we could see that. (laughs) The horribly violent movie. But Mrs. Penny is puzzled, and Eddie explains that a guy in a hockey mask chops up a group of teenagers, but he assures her that there's no sex or anything bad. Oh, all right. Just gratuitous violence. (laughs) This is this. That's the American mentality. Absolutely. That's fine. But Mrs. Penny looks at her son like, "What the hell?" and tells them both that there's no way they'll be let into a movie like that. But Eddie has the hookup. His brother is an usher at the theater. (laughs) There's so many times where it could be like, oh, you're right. We're not going to be able to get in. Just shut up. He's like, no, 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 we got that covered. (laughs) Don't you worry, Mrs. B. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, my brother is jeopardizing his employment. (laughs) It's fine. Don't worry. You don't even got to (laughs) pay. Shut up. (laughs) But Mrs. Penny clears the table, telling her son that he will not be seeing that picture, and that's final. So now if we go, I can't even be like, oh, I didn't know that you'd be mad. Yeah. Yeah. Because now you have been told you're not going to that movie. The title of the film, even. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you suck, Eddie. I'd be, oh, I'd be so mad. Yeah, but uh, continue. (laughs) (laughs) But Meg calls downstairs, asking her mother if she's seen her pink sweater, and Mrs. Penny sets the dishes down to head up there. As soon as she does, Kevin looks at Eddie like, what are you doing, dude? (laughs) (laughs) But as Mrs. Penny heads upstairs, she regretfully tells Meg that they had an accident in the wash. Meg, in good spirits, holds her shrunken sweater to her body, admitting that it's an interesting look. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Penny offers her daughter her own cashmere sweater, which Meg is pleased to accept, and before she can put it on, the doorbell rings. Hell yeah, cashmere yeah. sweater. I mean. It's a fucking upgrade. Yeah. Shrink all my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but Kevin answers the door for Paul, peering through the crack at him suspiciously as he says that he's here to see Meg. Kevin tells him just a minute and slams the door, which earns a nervous scoff from Paul. Not even a second later, Mrs. Penny opens the door for Paul, apologizing and introducing herself as Meg's mother. Paul is delighted to meet her and is invited inside just as Kevin and Eddie are about to make their exit. Mrs. Penny asks Kevin where he thinks he's going, 
and he reminds her that he's going to go sleep over at Eddie's tonight. Absolutely no slasher films whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. As they're like scrambling to get out the door, I was like, those boys are absolutely going to see that. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And see, so here's the thing. Okay. <laughs> there's no phones. Mm-hmm. No. There's no computers to track me. There's no <laughs> watches. There's, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> We Nowadays. were wild and free. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, but I with, will be back, Mom. Mm-hmm. With tomorrow. my luck, it's like the the Reverend saw you at the, at the no, bloody, yeah. bloody, bloody massacre. <laughs> well, what is he doing there? Well, you know, yeah. mutually yeah. assured destruction. Yeah. yeah, it's like you shut your fucking mouth, I'll shut my fucking mouth. <laughs> but against Kevin's protests, she insists that he wears his coat outside. And after a struggle with the zipper, he and Eddie are off. Small. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Foreshadowing. Yes. Appreciate it. But almost immediately, the phone rings and Mrs. Penny rushes off to answer it. Meg comes downstairs, fully dressed in her mom's cashmere sweater, and Paul tells her that she looks wonderful. She thanks him, but before they leave for their date, Meg says that she wants Paul to meet her father. They enter a nearby study together to find a man obscured by the newspaper he's reading. Meg introduces Paul to her father, and when he lowers the paper, we recognize a familiar face. Mr. Penny, Meg's father, is the pharmacist. What the fuck? (laughs) Paul's eyes widen as Mr. Penny angrily mutters one word to him. Ribbed. This was so funny. Yeah. And what gets me is I'm pretty sure I've heard this told as a joke before. Okay. Really? 99.9% sure. And even the newspaper obscuring his face, I still didn't see it coming. (laughs) When he lowered it, I was like, fuck! (laughs) I will say on commentary, Chuck Russell said this is a true story. Really? He said it happened to his best friend when they were in high school. God. He was like, and I told the pharmacist. Yeah, Yeah, I was fine. (laughs) What an asshole. (laughs) I will say he didn't say that part. He said that right. it was just the buying and meeting. Okay. Oh, but um, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. But in the darkness of Elkins Grove, by the small light of a flashlight in his mouth, Brian puts Moss's ratchet set to good use repairing his motorcycle. But after a moment of uneasiness, Brian surveys his surroundings, eyeing a halo of blue light beaming through the trees, but not much else. As he returns to work, however... A twig snaps nearby, causing him to cautiously mount his bike and turn on his headlight. He glides it over the trees, but when he sees nothing but greenery, he shuts it off. Just as the scene returns to the calm stillness of the night, the can man lurches up out of nowhere, wielding an axe. He raises his hand, a glove of goo covering it, and he brings the axe down into his wrist. Just as blood begins to spill, the goo cinches upward, covering it. Brian watches in disbelief as the can man runs off into the trees and calls out before chasing after him. How do you even deal with that? You don't. You're just trying to fix your bike. Mm -hmm. And then this dude who laughed at you earlier, now he's trying to cut his own arm off. He's got a big booger on it or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he was waiting for a witness too. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, yeah. But I, I do think that it was very wise of just narratively Brian to have met this man earlier and Mm -hmm. for it to have been in good spirits. And the man was not like aggressive or, you know, deranged or anything like that. He was just a a dude out there Mm -hmm. and they kind of shared this moment. So it's not even like, Oh, like this scary stranger is running up on me in the woods. Like I just saw this dude a few hours ago and he was fine. Mm -hmm. Like that makes it so much scarier. 
one thing they did describe the blob as in Fangoria, which kind of, it was a quote from Tony Gardner, but on commentary, he kind of didn't like the quote anymore. They described the blob as an inside out vampire stomach, which is not great. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say. But honestly, that kind of is exactly what it's I doing. Was, I, guess, I was going to yeah. say with the acids. Yeah. You know? And the <laughs> lust for blood. Yeah. yeah. And one thing I will say is very interesting is when we first see the blob, uh, it kind of starts out pretty clear, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. And then as the film progresses, even now, it's starting to get a little pink. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if that has to do with uh, what the hell it's been, you know. <laughs> what the hell have, have you, you been, been drinking? <laughs> 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 I was going to say a pink in his teeth as he chewed. But I just thought that was a neat little detail. Yeah. yeah. But in Paul's car, Meg apologizes for her father, promising that she's never seen him like that before. So I wonder what he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get the <laughs> fuck out of my house. Well, I mean, I can't imagine that it went well. I'll be surprised when we went back to them. I was surprised that they were that they were allowed to leave together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I <laughs> guess cool because like we came to an understanding. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's just funny to me that all of that happened off screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Paul chalks it up to a misunderstanding, but admits that he's made better first impressions before. Meg smiles, telling him no harm done, but Paul corrects her. She's wrong. Scott Jeske's going to die. He just threatened murder, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> On a first I would, date. I would feel the same way. Yeah. Isn't it funny? His name almost sounds like Jet, Jet Ski. ski. <laughs> <laughs> but she just laughs it off. And as the car continues speeding down the road, the can man rushes out of the nearby forest. Meg shouts to get Paul's attention, but he just plows into the old man who crumbles onto his side, conveniently covering his affected hand. And again, this is very similar to the original. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking, I know what you did last summer. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, we got to get yeah. rid of this dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, what, <laughs> that's what I was thinking, because it's like, we really just gloss over the fact that he hit him with the yeah. scar. Yeah. We get over that very quickly. <laughs> and we don't really talk about no. it, even at It's like, hospital. oh my God, look at his arm. Yeah. <laughs> I can't <laughs> that believe. That had nothing to do with my I can't car. believe he just collapsed <laughs> in front of the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's crazy. But Brian bounds out of the trees after him. And as Paul and Meg exit the vehicle to check on the can man, Paul asks accusatorily what Brian did to him. You re- okay. This is what I'm like, what is this reputation? Yeah. That you think I'm in the woods yeah. just attacking an old man. <laughs> <laughs> on Saturday and night. He, yeah. And he fled out into the street. <laughs> what do you think of me? It is it is a little odd thinking about it more because it, it like we said earlier, all his interactions are fine They're with fine. everybody. Yeah. But, I mean, it is one of those things. You get a reputation. Yeah. And it doesn't matter after a certain point. Yeah. But Brian retorts that he's not the one who ran over him. But Paul shoots back that Brian chased him into the middle of the road. Meg cuts through the bullshit, saying that they need to get the old man to a doctor. <laughs> they do, because they're arguing and he's just like, Ugh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As they lift him to his feet to put him in the back of the car, Brian tells them to watch out because he's got (laughs) what he calls some corrosive shit on his hand. He's not wrong. Yeah. The can man whimpers as they lower him into the back seat, but he also mutters, the sky, it fell from the sky. 
Paul asks what he's saying, but Meg just says that he's in shock and they have to go now. No, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. It was very, very clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was coherent. <laughs> Brian goes to walk off, but Paul tells him to get in the car. He says there are going to be a lot of questions about what happened tonight, and Brian is part of it. He threatens him, asking if he's going to get in or is he going to have to make him get in. Brian just smirks, asking Paul if he's afraid of a little insurance claim on Daddy's car. But Brian offers to join them, but only to make sure that Paul doesn't blame him for the whole thing. From the passenger seat, Meg breaks it up again, and the two of them join Meg inside the car on either side of the bench seat. With his arm now around Meg, resting on the back of the seat, Brian sarcastically tells Paul, whenever you're ready. He didn't ask to come along. You he told didn't. him to come. True. But Paul drives off, and the shot crossfades into their arrival at the hospital. They carry the can man inside and lay him down on the couch inside the waiting room. Paul and Brian approach the front desk in a hurry, where Nurse Farmer, played by Margaret Smith, does not match their urgency. Mm-mm. After flipping through a chart for a moment, Paul tells her that they've had a car accident and the old man needs medical attention. Meg adds that he has something on his hand, some kind of acid or something. <laughs> As one does. Yeah. <laughs> the nurse looks him over from behind the desk without getting up, asking if he has Blue Cross. Meg has no way of knowing this, and the nurse then asks if he has medical insurance of any kind. In the words of Childish Gambino, this is America. Indeed. Yeah. Um, this is like some black humor because it's it's accurate as fuck. Yeah. yeah. Sadly. Um, it did kind of make me laugh a little bit that uh he classified it as a car accident because that's yeah. not really what happened. Well, a vehicle was involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter anything else. <laughs> he really sugarcoated it a little bit. <laughs> But Brian can't believe it, and Paul shares that they don't even know this guy. Annoyed, the nurse presses a buzzer, telling them that the doctor is with another patient right now. An uncredited orderly enters the room, taking the can man to room three upon the nurse's request. Brian helps the old man into a wheelchair, assuring him that they're going to fix him right up. Again, so kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Meg looks over at him, pleasantly surprised by his kindness, but as he turns to leave the hospital, Paul stops him, asking him where he thinks he's going. Meg's like, maybe you weren't whipping that old man's ass. Yeah. <laughs> All through the trees. <laughs> right. Maybe you were wrong about you. <laughs> right, that mullet is a little cute. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I see it now. <laughs> but Brian says that the hospital staff doesn't give a shit about explanations, but tells Paul that if he needs him, he knows where to find him. Whipping that old man's <laughs> yeah. ass in the woods. <laughs> right, I did beat his ass. Yeah. He runs away. Yeah, we'll go find another one. <laughs> this one got away from me. <laughs> but as he walks into the night, Paul and Meg take a seat in the waiting room to fill out paperwork on behalf of the old man. So it was very funny to me. I was looking in the screenplay. Yeah. In the screenplay, Paul apologizes for how he acted earlier to brian mm -hmm. and they kind of have this moment of all right to yeah, brian yeah. to brian oh before he leaves but in this in the film he just <laughs> glares at the back of brian's head yeah so it's like all right i guess <laughs> mortal enemies or <laughs> okay, whatever yeah 
what I was wondering is, what is he even filling out? You don't know anything. Nothing. They don't even know his name. <laughs> yeah. He's just a... Uh, Corrosive oh. shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the reason for visit. <laughs> Also, though, am I the only idiot that didn't know that the blob was like corrosive? What did you think it was? I thought it was just like like sucking him up, like a vacuum, like um, not like Kirby, and not like the way you're thinking, John Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ! Christ. <laughs> no, I thought it was just like remember um, in uh, Futurama that alien that was just like shoving shit in him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, <laughs> you got to be careful about your words yeah. around. <laughs> around this See, one yeah i'm just pointing at it you, you know what i mean and they're just like floating suspended like a like jello oh right on that's what i thought the blob was and yeah. you just like suffocate in there i didn't know that it was acidic you could have said the same thing too like when dennis is looking for a new roommate and then there's a glory hole in the, <laughs> the bar and yes yeah, no you can't no. <laughs> exactly. can we have one episode <laughs> where we don't fucking <laughs> this is the 1980s is, <laughs> science fiction horror <laughs> classic the blob. <laughs> oh, God. But I, I truly didn't know. I was surprised at the acidic nature of it. It, I mean, it is. It's, it's one thing that is very fascinating about it. Yeah, that they're really able to bring to life in this film. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are moments in the first film. I, I feel like the blob is corrosive in the first film if it's turning red and shit. Okay. So I mean, it has to be. Okay. Yeah. But, but it, um, it's not as like prevalent. It's not as graphic. Okay. I'll, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> but we cut to some time later, and after removing his letterman jacket, Paul sets his pin down with much more paperwork to go. He laughs nervously, telling a seemingly bored Meg that he's sure that she's had better first dates before. But Meg just smiles, flipping through a magazine and telling Paul that she doesn't mind. Paul offers to get Meg a soda, which she accepts... But as he approaches the vending machine, he peers into room three. Inside, he sees the old man with the blue blanket over him, only something is suspiciously wriggling underneath it. I was like, are you allowed to just be back here? Oh, no. Yeah. And what he does next is breaking all the rules. (laughs) I literally wrote, Paul inches forward, opening a door that I'm sure he's not allowed to open. (laughs) But he cautiously creeps forward, overhearing the voice of a doctor giving a positive prognosis to another patient. He peeks into the office to find the doctor, played by Jack Nance, and the woman in his office is played by Charlene Fox. So Jack Nance was a David Lynch mainstay. Oh, okay. He was in so many of his projects from the 70s until his death in 1996. Mm-hmm. I know none of us have seen Eraserhead, but we've seen the poster for Eraserhead yeah. and clips from it. Uh-huh. He's the lead. Oh. oh all right and he's just in this one scene yeah yeah but he uh is in this film because the same person that cast this film joanna ray cast like all of david lynch's projects oh wow okay. so he's just he's a contact yeah yeah and it's interesting because there's other people that are in this film that are also will show up in twin peaks or other random david lynch projects huh. so it's just like a little interesting overlap that's really cool But Paul ventures forward, watching as something continues to slither underneath the old man's blanket. The square grows tense and dramatic as the old man's chest moves upward, his head falling to one side, now facing Paul, the old man's eyes completely white, and his neck covered in a large, swollen, and pulsating boil. The camera follows Paul as he backs away and into the doctor's office, getting his attention. The doctor has about as much urgency as the nurse up front. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) But Paul urges him away from his patient, telling him that a man is dying. Well, he's like, 
I'm with someone, yeah. man. <laughs> Dude, yeah. He, he's come frantic. Look. Yeah. Why isn't he like, what are you doing back here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody comes with that energy, it's not, oh my God, I'm talking. Like, yeah. You snap to attention. You would think, especially as a doctor. Yeah. I was going to say in a hospital, <laughs> but whatever. But they enter room number three and the doctor peers inside, confusedly asking, is this the hand injury? In all fairness, he hasn't seen his patient yet. Yeah. I saw your face. Is all. Well, <laughs> come on, man. But they approach the bed where the old man lies motionless. And after there's no response from him, the doctor removes his blanket. Underneath, smoke rises from the tattered torso of the old man. His entire lower body has been dissolved up to his ribs, leaving behind a mess of mutilated flesh, bubbling blood, and gruesome gore. I did think of the Invisible Man. I was like, he's all eaten away. (laughs) (laughs) But the the doctor simply asks, what is this? It's heartburn, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what it feels like. A severe case. Do you typically see this? Like, he's very, like, too calm. Yeah. No, we get this all the time. Yeah. I did. I did hear in uh, the commentary track. Tony Gardner was like, "And this shot was ruined by Fangoria," and I look in Fangoria, and it's just the dude's torso just wide uh. open. And I will say, I did see this a lot, and I do see this a lot whenever we do research and read these old issues of Fangoria, mm-hmm. where they do show they they show slash showcase a lot of the gore, and it's often. I mean, it's very spoilery but it's also yeah. a promotional tactic yeah yeah and you see this in the magazine you're probably going to go see the blob to see what the fuck's going on mm-hmm. but at the same time i don't want to see this yet for yeah. sure that's the thing i want to <laughs> see it in the blob yeah. yeah and then i'll read about it and look at stills of it and be like wow that's amazing work but i don't want to see it first yeah yeah but i will say that this is kind of when i knew that this movie was going to be a little different <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> you mean this di- this didn't happen in it's the like, that didn't happen to Steve yeah. McQueen. <laughs> Steve McQueen didn't see that no. shit. Uh, but it's wild, and it is very, very well done. Yes, you yeah. Can, you can see obviously where the makeup is applied, and probably where the actor is dipped below the bed. Yeah, but it is who cares? Incredible. Yeah, and I the only see this because I paused it to kind of survey it. Mm-hmm. It happened so fast. This shot. Yeah, that you just kind of. I mean, you. I was shocked to see it and so i'm not fucking looking at that yeah i just kind of like gasped a little bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like the blob is putting in some work (laughs) (laughs) he's fixing it yeah Yeah. (laughs) but the doctor immediately pages the nurse and paul knows that this is connected to what was on that old man's hand don't bring the nurse into this yeah there's nothing that we can do for this man now. He's like, have you seen this before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bring me his chart. Yeah. <laughs> but Paul rushes for the doctor's office just as the doctor's patient makes a quick exit and he sits down with a telephone in hand. The music pulses as Paul connects with the sheriff's office. Meg calls out for Paul from the waiting room but gives up on that pretty quickly. She literally just calls him out once. Yeah. Well, something is is clearly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's like, yeah. (laughs) As Paul sits in the office, the door slowly begins to close on its own, revealing a slithering gelatinous creature climbing up the walls. Herb takes the call at the sheriff's office and Paul tells him that he's at the Arborville hospital and that an old man's been killed. Just then, small white droplets rain down from the ceiling, which Paul doesn't notice. 
As the sheriff tells Paul to sit tight and that he'll be on his way soon, we watch as those droplets disintegrate the desk where they land, eating their way through. Gardner on commentary said that this was real acid on styrofoam. Oh my god. Damn. And I thought of real, real acid? <laughs> of course. Goggles, people. <laughs> I'm very glad that he called the cops because that yes. was my, I was like, thank you. Dude. Yes. He's it, doing the right thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Herb asks who else was involved, and Paul shares that he's here with Meg Penny, and Brian Flagg was here earlier. Don't, don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brian's not even here. Nope. No. Yeah. <laughs> like, I this think is he why... ate the old man's yeah. lower body. <laughs> <laughs> this is why he has a bad reputation. <laughs> yeah. We were just lying. And Herb immediately wants to know where Brian is now. But before Paul can answer, he notices the white dripping acid sizzling and searing its way through the desk. He looks up, and a large pink mass drops down from the ceiling. Paul screams loudly, which alerts Meg, who gets up to check on him. As she makes her way through the door, she turns towards the doctor's office, calling out for Paul, and she finds him. There in the chair, Paul reaches his hand out for rescue as the blob covers his face and body like a thin blanket, wriggling and pulsating over his fearful face, which appears opaque through the sheet of pink goo. Meg can't believe her eyes, standing frozen in terror as Paul's cries are muffled, but she screams his name, reaching for his hand. She tries to pull him out of it, but the blob, a shimmering pink slime now extending behind Paul, devours him, wrenching his mouth open like something out of an Edward Munch painting. Yeah. Yeah. Meg continues to pull his arm, and it tears off completely, causing her to fall back, and she can only watch as Paul's skull is frozen in a scream, which looks an awful lot like scream. (laughs) (laughs) And he's absorbed into the blob. Meg faints as Paul's sizzling arm lies twitching on the floor. That looked great. It made me think of The Raft Mm. um, from Creepshow. Yeah. Um, But this looked fucking fantastic amazing the whole time i was like i'm i i already knew i was like i'm not pausing this when shit goes i can rewind it <laughs> yeah i, like, I have we're to watching watch it this. Yeah. yeah i was just shocked yeah no it looks amazing and in that q a chuck russell had said that he and um darabont had taken inspiration from psycho mm-hmm. with the false protagonist because i was like there's no fucking way Paul is dead right now. Yeah. There's no way. They even talked about it in the Fangoria interview because they asked him, like, who's playing the Steve McQueen part? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, it's a little difficult to say, but I would probably say the character of Paul is Steve McQueen in this film. Smart. (laughs) Very smart. Yeah, Yeah. smart. But I mean, it's it. I I think that's the thing about it is that it's just such wonderful misdirection. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you're lying to reporters and stuff. Yeah, I don't care. You know what? Lie. (laughs) I'm so fucking sick of knowing what's going to happen before it happens. And the thing about this is that from here on and even more times in the future, you feel like nobody's safe in this town. Yeah. Yes. And that's a very good feeling to have in a horror film. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it only intensifies, like yeah, you said, yeah. as it goes on, because I'm like, no way. Like, there's a couple that, uh, a couple deaths that floored me. Yeah. And this yeah. is one of them. Oh, absolutely. But I did want to talk about all of the effects work and makeup that went into this mm-hmm. and also the design of the blob itself. Okay. The design of the blob is credited to Lyle Conway and a guy called Stuart Ziff. 
Conway, a couple years earlier, worked on Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, very Ooh. nice. And he worked primarily with Jim Henson on a ton of his projects. Oh, I love that. Ziff worked on Star Wars and Ghostbusters <laughs> and later Jurassic Park. All right. Hey. Nice. So they were responsible for the creature, but the makeup effects were credited to Tony Gardner, a protege of Rick Baker. Yeah. Who we've talked about on a few episodes. Mm-hmm. I know Return of the Living Dead mm-hmm. and Army of Darkness. Yes. Yeah, I was going through his filmography, and those obviously were the two that I was like, oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, But I didn't know that his first job that he ever did was working under Rick Baker on the Thriller video. No shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if we talked about that, but that's like... What a filmography! I what know. a yeah. like I. That's just amazing. He worked on Zombieland, Hocus Pocus. Like it's it's wild. That's and crazy. I read that he designed the helmets for Daft Punk. What? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, now you're just trolling me. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is this? I I did um here on commentary as far as the creation and operation of the blob. Uh huh. Um. They apparently did a lot of R&D trying to figure out what materials would work. Mm -hmm. They eventually settled on silk bags, acrylic. And so I see methicil in some sources and I see methyl cellulose in other sources. Mm -hmm. But Fangoria, in an interview with Tony Gardner, credits Noel Eicher and Marilyn Dozer with coming up with the proper mixture that allowed the blob to be pliable. Oh, okay. So, interestingly, uh, Marilyn Dozer went on to not only work on Jurassic Park, oh, but all of the Avengers films. Oh, Hell shit. yeah. <laughs> Damn. So, just wild. Yeah. But different materials were needed for different scenes and different ideas for the blob. Okay. And I did read in an article by Meg Shields that I guess, I don't know what exactly happened, but after principal photography, Conway left the production. Hmm. And so whenever they had to do reshoots and go back and shoot some of these different sequences, Tony Gardner was just in control of all of it. Okay. And so they kind of hollowed out an old auto body shop and called it the blob shop. (laughs) (laughs) And they kind of divided it into different sections of people working on different things. Yeah. So you had people doing mechanical stuff. You had people doing uh, special effects and creature and makeup work. Hell yeah. But- Whenever there's no movements for the blob, it's completely sculpted. And when it does need movements, they created what they called blob quilts, which were those silk sheets that were filled with that methyl cellulose and puppeteered by people. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But they put as many of these quilts as needed to create the size of the blob that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And so... They would drape them over fiberglass, mechanical armatures, sometimes even actors and the puppeteers themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll talk a little bit in a second about what Donovan Leach had to do. But Shields in her article listed a lot of use of miniatures, stop motion and puppetry, as well as compositing to create all of the movements all of the actions and all of the scenes that we see featuring the blob. Okay. So it is the work of so many different methods. Yeah. So many different techniques 
But every single time we see the blob, and Erwin uh, talked about the difficulty with lighting the blob. Yeah. I bet. Because it has to look the same in every shot. Uh-huh. And these silk sheets are kind of shiny. Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of tricky, but I never once was like, well, that's not what the blob looked like. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> no. Three scenes ago or whatever. <laughs> But um, it's just it's just incredible the way that they put everything together. Yeah. But Shields also detailed this scene with Paul's death. Yeah. And it was very interesting because the thing that impressed me the most is they shot this last. Oh, really? Really? Yes. Because on commentary, they had mentioned that what they wanted to do was to perfect everything that they needed with the blob uh-huh. so that the first time we see the blob it's a result of all the knowledge that they've already gained working with it. Oh, very that's smart. very yeah. smart. Yeah, like I would have never thought that. No. Yeah. But this is, I mean, they're like, the first time you see the blob, it has to be the most impressive. Yeah. And then they're like, everything else we can kind of figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this time is very impactful. Oh, wow. But they, That's brilliant. Yeah. They started with Donovan Leach actually sitting on a rig and having the blob draped over him. So the shots that we see of him at first with him reaching out and screaming, mm-hmm. that's the actor. <laughs> and at some points, and you don't even notice it until you know it, but at some points it's switched out with a miniature yeah. of the actor of the blob and a miniature of Shawnee Smith even. That's what gets me. Yeah. There's a scene later on that heavily features miniatures and I would not like you even right now, I would never know if I wasn't told. No. no. That's what trips me out when they're able to utilize them in that way Mm -hmm. it's just it's so impressive but shield said that they had a miniature for the scene wherever she's first pulling his arms right and you see that that part of the blob that's stretching towards the window Mm -hmm. they called that the waterfall because of its movement yeah but the way that it moves it moves in a different direction from the part of the blob that's taking paul yeah and so it's supposed to imply that the blob is just this gelatinous Mm. just absolutely amorphous figure that just moves in fucking weird configuration right, yeah. right and it works and it looks so well yeah and the arm of course was a mechanical armature and uh ripping it off is much more simple application than what we have experienced with the block <laughs> 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 but um the way that they crushed his face and made him look like the scream was just a wax uh sculpture wow that looks fucking Bravo. It's like, so impressive. And I think it's the way that it's edited, the way that everything is cut together. You never feel like, oh, well, that's the miniature. That's the wax figure. That's this. Yeah. It's Paul being killed. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's it. No, it's it's b- like blended so well. Yeah. And, like interchanged. It's That's amazing. But I did see an interview on YouTube. It was with Terror at Synth High, and they interviewed Nick Benson, who did special effects on the blob. Okay. He had said that at any given time, there were about 30 blob wranglers. Wow. (laughs) Operating and puppeteering it. God, man. And it's just wild. Yeah. And the I think what gets me the most is the switching out of miniatures, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Seamless. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. I wouldn't believe that at all if you told me that. Not at all. I saw Chuck Russell talking about that um, methyl cellulose Mm -hmm. and he said that it was so it made everything so slippery and like horrible. (laughs) But he said 
He said that it was used as a thickening agent for fast food milkshakes, but Ooh. he kept specifically saying McDonald's. He kept specifically saying McDonald's. <sighs> and um, he said that working with it in this capacity, because it just, they use it to make it thicker or used to. I don't know yeah, if they still yeah. do. Mm-hmm. But he said it put him off of milkshakes for decades. He couldn't. He couldn't because of this. Damn. Do you remember on House of a Thousand Corpses where they're under the thing and Earl takes off yes. his mask? Yeah. And that green goo. Yep. Rob Zombie also made a point to say McDonald's milkshake. You know? I, really? I don't know what's uh, going on. <laughs> for McDonald's neck. Yeah. <laughs> like your Coke might be crispy, but, but uh, <laughs> it is the best Coke. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's it is. right. <laughs> but sometime later. The police arrive at the hospital, as do Mr. and Mrs. Penny, who take Meg away from the terrible scene. Meg insists that she saw it kill Paul, but the Pennies ignore this, instead calling out to Herb, asking permission to take Meg home. Herb allows this, telling them to make sure that she gets a good night's sleep, and as soon as they leave, Herb is joined by Deputy Bill Briggs, played by Paul McCrane. This confused me. Were there no remains of Paul? I think they've, it's taken him. It's eaten, except for that arm, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah because he, the old man, a lot of him was left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's arm came off. I'm just like, because people were like, okay, Meg. I mean, it's just odd because they're like, where, where's Paul? Paul's, in yeah, there. The- like, there's not a trace. There's no piece. I think what's confusing to me is they are like, as if it's a missing person. Yeah. 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 But then Herb's like, oh, Paul's not coming back. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but how do you know that? And you don't have, yeah. <laughs> and you don't have the doctor that's like, no, some fucking weird shit was in there. Yeah. He went to make a call and I never saw him again. Honestly. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know. I thought that was strange. I didn't even think about the doctor. Honestly, I was Me just neither. like, oh, he's unless gone. The doctor, yeah, yeah, unless he got got too. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. But even that, how do you explain to half dissolved man and uh, just yeah. an extra hand somewhere? You, yeah. Yeah, you can't. You cannot. Yeah. Like, oh, we just leave these lying around. Yeah. <laughs> the blonde came back and picked up his mess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we missed the spot. Yeah. yeah. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to talk about Paul McCrane for a second. Uh, according to his filmography... McCrane was in 126 episodes of ER. Damn. Oh, wow. He was also in RoboCop, which they talked a lot about on commentary. Okay. But he played a guard in the Shawshank Redemption. Nice. Frankie D. Yeah. Yeah. But Herb tells Bill that they're not going to be able to get anything out of Meg tonight. And as the camera follows them through the parking lot, Bill says that he called Paul's parents and they say that they haven't heard from him. Herb tells him that they're not going to. And again, I was like, what? Yeah. So is he... Did you find those, his arm or not? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably like flag killed him. <laughs> yeah, honestly. What? Herb tells a passing paramedic who is pushing a gurney with a body bag to get that body to Sacramento tonight and that he wants the autopsy pronto, not next week. I assume this is the can man. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. so it's still there. Yeah. But he stands in shock, attempting to wrap his mind around the crime scene, muttering, Jesus wept. And I, yeah. yeah, I remember what Nay said on the Hellraiser episode yeah. when she said that that line from that film was originally, fuck you, yeah. which is the funniest thing in the world. That's Rob Zombie's version. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus wept is just way better. Yeah. So much better. In every way. But Bill checks in on Herb asking if he's okay. Herb thinks for a moment and responds that Paul was a good kid and that he wants the bastard who did this. And just then, 
another police car arrives on the scene with Brian in the back seat. Bill says that they might have already got him. He didn't even, he wasn't even there. No. Nope. And they, they had to pick him up. Yeah. Well, not only that again, I don't think he dissolved this dude. He didn't, like, he didn't pour <laughs> no. chemicals on him and then just took off or, and again, I didn't think about the doctor, but yeah, yeah. where's yeah. the doctor? But yeah, they're just bringing him back. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I maybe it's because, well, they had said Paul was like, well, he, well, but he said he was here. Yeah, yeah. he didn't say he's here right now. No, that's true. So yeah. I don't know. He's just got it in for him, really. Yeah. yeah. But from the back seat of her parents' car, Meg locks eyes with Brian, who watches as the pennies drive away. Well, we got to a car in some secluded area among the trees. Inside, things are getting hot and heavy between Scott and Vicky DeSoto, played by Erica Aleniak. As they're making out, Vicky stops him, telling him to cut it out, but he tells her that she's wearing his ring, which makes her his girl. Fuck off. Absolutely. I'm already pissed. This yeah. dude's a fucking cartoon. He's disgusting. Like, what the fuck? She giggles nervously, and he just continues kissing her, even though it's very clear that she's not into it. But she peers through the window, directing Scott's attention to a series of lights that she sees off in the distance at the hospital. It was funny to me that their makeout spot overlooks the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> what is this town? Who, <laughs> the city planner, we got to talk. <laughs> but Scott jokes that it's probably a promotional gimmick. They're giving away free tonsillectomies or something. What? I don't know. I'm about to give you a free tonsillectomy. Yeah. <laughs> Scott changes the subject, suggesting that Vicky is in need of another one of his famous cherry coolers. She insists that she's had enough, but Scott doesn't listen, snagging their glasses and heading to his trunk, which is basically outfitted like a full-service bar with red fuzz and a small basketball net for good measure. He also has a box yes. full of other I, rings. Yes, and I, yes. Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe that. I was like, this fucking dude, man. My next note was blob. Please come get his ass. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How am I? I'm rooting for the blob. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> but as he pours them both another drink and with aliens feel my love playing on the car radio, Vicky rests sleepily against her seat inside. But nearby, in a POV shot through the grass, something eyes Scott through gurgling movements as he continues mixing their drinks. Scott closes a box full of his rings, as we said, and sprays some banaca into his mouth. He's a fucking cretin. Fucking yeah. <laughs> cretin, yeah. I was going to say predator, but yeah, <laughs> well, cretin also you works. You can be two things. Yeah. The boorish bartender rejoins Vicky in the car and discovers that she's passed out. Through running commentary, this waste of skin decides to unbutton her shirt. As he reaches his hand to her breast... He is immediately seized by the blob, which wraps around his hand like a tentacle. Vicky's face turns towards him, collapsing in on itself, blood oozing from her eyes as he screams wildly. The blob oozes from her, engulfing Scott and absorbing him as he kicks out the window in a last futile gesture before he is devoured by the viscous villain. You love to see it. You do. I didn't want Vicky to die. No. no. Um, but it was wild to me that the blob was like, Let's see where he's going with this. Like no, the blob waited yeah. and was like, nope. Wow. <laughs> now I'm coming for that ass. What is the blob thinking? Like, I don't know. The blob's like, I cannot fucking believe no, this. No, the blob. He was like, was that a box of rings back yeah. there? You bastard. <laughs> the blob should have been like, get out of here, Vicky. I got yeah. this. <laughs> but no, you know. Well, 
the blob needed to look like Vicky in order to take him. So yeah. I, like, I guess I'll wait. Is the blob Michael Myers with these yeah. pranks? <laughs> like, what is it was this? Very, it was very patient. The blob's wearing a sheet with eye holes. <laughs> I'm characteristically patient. But at home in her bed, Meg tearfully admires a snow globe on her nightstand. Interesting. Mm. She overhears her father. <laughs> he delivers a hilarious line reading <laughs> because he goes, I know I shouldn't have let her go out with that son of a bitch. In the first place. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. I, very angry yeah <laughs> dad please <laughs> meg's door is open dude. yeah <laughs> but mrs penny tells her husband to lower his voice because that poor boy is probably dead yeah <laughs> that's why i was like her door's wide open yeah <laughs> <laughs> but we cut to her parents in the kitchen mrs penny wondering what could have happened out there tonight Mr. Penny says that whatever happened, he bets that flag kid was behind it. And it's about time they nailed that little psychopath. Again. What did he do? Did he tape everyone's buns together? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what has happened? I know. Hmm. He drew dicks on everybody's car. Oh, really? yeah. and then they had mm. to investigate. Yeah. <laughs> There's a documentary about yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> But snagging a beer, he declares that Brian's ass is going to fry this time. But we haven't seen any interaction between him and Flag at nope, all. Not this at is all. purely reputation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Mrs. Penny goes to check on her daughter, whose bedroom door is open, as we <laughs> said. <laughs> but as somber piano plays, she sits on her daughter's bed, giving her a glass of water and a sleeping pill. Meg reluctantly takes the pill and a sip of water as her mother comforts her. She tells Meg to let it alone and that the police will have the whole thing settled by the morning. Meg doesn't look as certain, but her mother helps her into bed, covering her up, shutting off the lamp, and giving her a kiss on the cheek. Before she leaves, Meg calls out to her mother, asking her, You don't believe me either, do you? Mrs. Penny gives the non-answer, You're home now. You're safe. That's all that matters. She said, oh, honey, of course I don't. <laughs> yeah. There's Get some sleep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's no way in hell Ari tells me that this is what she saw and this is what happened. And I'm like, just take a pill and go to bed. Uh, like, yeah. there's no fucking way. That even, even if, and I don't know how you could misconstrue seeing what the fuck she has <laughs> seen. Mm-hmm. But even if so, something horribly traumatic happened, you made something up in your head if that didn't really... Like, you need help. Yeah. It's not just... They're they're so cavalier. He's more angry about Flag, <laughs> yeah. who wasn't even was there, no. than worried about his daughter, who is traumatized, regardless of whether that's what happened or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that's That was my thing. My note is, like, right now, even, like you said, as wild as that shit sounds... Your kid needs you to believe them right yes. now. Yes. And she can tell that her mom doesn't believe a word that she's no. saying. She's like, go to bed. Yeah. Oh <laughs> I got to talk shit with your father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Mrs. Penny shuts off another lamp and closes Meg's door. As soon as she's alone, Meg sits up, placing the sleeping pill that she secretly palmed onto her nightstand. She heads over to her window, looking over her shoulder before opening it. Somewhere, the blob marches on, gurgling in motion over fencing, and in its pulsating pink mass, 
we see one of Scott's rings on the necklace that Vicky was wearing, and as the camera rises above the creature, we see the town of Arborville off in the distance. So I learned on commentary that in this shot, the town is a matte painting. Wow. <laughs> Looks great. Yeah. Yeah. Never would have guessed. And I love these little details like that. Yes. The ring being in there. Mm-hmm. That's great. They had said, because I, I read an interview with Chuck Russell that nowadays he said, obviously, it would all be CG. Yeah. And even he would be interested in seeing what that would be like. Mm-hmm. One thing that they really wanted to do but couldn't do was to have the floating skeletons of all the Blob's victims in the Blob. Mm. But obviously, that's like, that's insane. That's yeah. a lot. And he even said that they had intended on doing CG yeah. for the film. But in the in their, I guess, initial attempts, it just did not work out. Yeah, I'm glad they went this way. Yes. Yeah. Especially at this time when we have the thing and the fly. Yeah. This is just a part of this amazing mm-hmm. group of incredible special effects. Yeah. yeah. There is one bit that they did use CG for that they talk about a little bit later, but it's so well placed you wouldn't even guess it. Okay. Mm. But at the police station, Brian sits in front of Herb and Bill. Bill, clearly playing bad cop, says that Brian is too stupid to realize how much trouble he's in, suggesting that he wises up. Exactly what am I here for? Mm-hmm. There is no proof of anything. No. no. There's one person placing you at the scene, and yeah, he's dead now. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, I guess that is pretty bad. Well, <laughs> wait. Yeah. I think we stumbled into yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but <Aww>. again, though... <laughs> earlier you have you have a birthday coming up Mm -hmm. i'm not an adult yeah why are you guys here roughing me up you're right no parent is present no no lawyer and again even um even paul was like he was here like earlier yeah he dissolved this old man and then he ran away like that wasn't what happened but brian insists that he's told them everything and he's tired of hearing himself talk After another snarky comment from Bill, Brian directs his attention to Herb, asking him if he's under arrest, because if he is, he wants a lawyer. Very smart. Mm -hmm. Bill scoffs at this request, spitting some tobacco into a cup, and Brian says whether he's under arrest or not, he wants Bill out of his face. Bill launches himself toward him, an inch away from his face, asking Brian what he's going to do about it. I'm like, dude, what is this? Brian, with his hands cuffed behind his back, leans forward and licks Bill's face. Iconic. Ooh. <laughs> as, Iconic. Oh, yeah. As Bill seizes Brian's shirt, but moments before he rains blows down upon him, Herb calls him off. I was a little disappointed in him for letting it go that far. Yeah. yeah. I thought he'd be a little better than that. Yeah. yeah. It's Jeffrey DeMunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain level of... Yes. <laughs> But Bill backs off, wiping his face, as Sally Jeffers, played by Teddy Vincent, walks in. Herb asks if she's had any luck calling Brian's mother, but Sally says that she can't seem to find her. Bill then goes in on Brian's mother, saying that that isn't much of a surprise, claiming that she takes vacations with Johnny Walker Red and anyone else who happens to be around. Come on, man. We don't need to do mamas. We don't need to do that. He goes worse. (laughs) He says, maybe we could call Brian's father. If anyone knew who he was. All right. Yeah. Okay. Calm down. What is this? The roast of Brian yeah. Black? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I, charge me or let yeah. me know. <laughs> Brian's like, I didn't agree to this shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brian sarcastically adds that they should call a shrink because he's a broken man. 
<laughs> this is so personal. God, yeah, I know. Bill asks Brian if he thinks this is a joke, and Herb finally calls Bill over for an aside. After a moment, Herb gives the order, turn him loose. Bill can't believe it. They've got eyewitnesses placing him at the scene of the crime. But Herb says that they have no motive, no evidence, and not a drop of blood on him. He agrees that Brian is a punk, but he's no killer. It took you that whole time to come to the conclusion that, oh, he shouldn't be here. We're going to be in a lot of trouble. (laughs) I think Herb was like, I think that last line was a bit too far. (laughs) (laughs) It's bad. Um, Not the roughing the kid out, not him licking his face. Oh, that was mean. (laughs) That stung me. (laughs) But Bill thinks that letting him go is a mistake, which Herb says is duly noted. But he repeats the order, turn him loose. And he tells Bill that they have work to do. Bill does as he's told, uncuffing Brian. But the camera follows Brian as he exits the police station, clad in his leather jacket once again. But as soon as he does, Meg rounds the corner in a light blue Volkswagen Beetle. So in the original, Steve McQueen's car was light blue like this. Oh, okay. So I thought that was a little nod. Which also kind of feeds into what they had said in an interview with... No, they said it on commentary, that kind of Meg becomes the Steve McQueen. Yeah. Oh, all right, all right. So it's a little nod to that and a little foreshadowing in a way. But she calls out to Brian through the open window, telling him that she needs to talk to him. When he just keeps walking, Meg parks and joins him on the sidewalk. He asks what she's doing here, and she hands him her credit card, telling him that she came down here to bail him out. He jokes, telling her that the station isn't Neiman Marcus. They don't take plastic. But thank you very much. Yeah. Like, you just handed me your credit very card? Very kind. You know my reputation? <laughs> <laughs> but he expresses his gratitude. He says it's the thought that counts, but he tells her that she should go home. Meg still insists that they need to talk, but Brian gives his sincere condolences for what happened to Paul, but says that he's tired and hungry and isn't in the mood for conversation. Her hair blowing in the light breeze as she stands alone on the sidewalk, Meg watches as Brian heads into the pie pan cafe. I was like, oh, okay. It's giving Claire and John Bender. Like, ah, I, I see what we're doing Right there. on. Gives her an ear. Paul who? And- yeah. yeah. Paul who? <laughs> Inside, Brian greets George Ruiz, the cook played by Clayton Landy, who is out in the front of the house mopping the floor. Fran, who stands behind the counter, tells Brian that they're closed for the night, and as the lights shut off, Brian politely asks Fran to give him a break because it's been a rough day. Fran responds playfully with sarcasm, but after sharing that the grill has been shut down, offers to make him a sandwich. So again, other people in town kind of like Brian. Yeah, it it seems like they're almost taking care of him. Yeah. Yes. Dude helped him out with earlier the tools, with the tools, yeah. and he's mm-hmm. like, okay, you just come back, spend some time here, and help out, whatever, I got you. Same thing here. We're She's closed. You've had a rough day. You're a kid. Let's get you something. You and know Her- what I mean? Herb is like, if I catch you, I yeah. like, it's just so weird. <laughs> it's very odd, because the way that they're treating him, you'd expect him to come in and be like, no, give me a fucking sandwich. <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's so kind, and she's so happy to be able to help him it's Mm -hmm. just it's weird but brian takes a seat and as george heads outside meg storms in brian is exasperated to see her but meg tells him honestly she needs his help brian is puzzled he says for three years in high school she's never said shit to him and now all of a sudden she needs his help so they're best friends people are dead 
Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think now's the time for the social hierarchy yeah. of Arborville High or whatever. <laughs> He's like, you don't condescend yeah. to even speak to any of my friends. <laughs> this is the breakfast club. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look at any of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> but does does that imply though that he didn't finish maybe uh, to me it implies that he's still going it okay, kind of well, does because yeah. he's like yeah. the last three years i don't know i don't know it doesn't matter no <laughs> no. no we never see the school again or, yeah. <laughs> or ever really for that matter no more games we don't, yeah no. we don't attend their graduation <laughs> But Meg just takes a seat, sharing that nobody believes her about what happened tonight. Brian asks her what did happen, and she reminds him that he was there and he saw. But Brian reduces the evening's events to an old man with a funky hand, (laughs) (laughs) claiming that that's all he saw. To be fair, all he saw was a little sizzling. Mm -hmm. He didn't see the full extent of what happened, so... She can't really expect him to fully understand, you know, that weird corrosive thing on his hand. Well, it fucking ate his middle and then it (laughs) took Paul and sizzled him up like he doesn't know all that. Yeah, but he did see the old man chop at his arm. He did. He did. That would be still concerning. How's he doing? Did did he lose the arm? Did he what? Like, or I mean, why did that man do that? These teens are resilient. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, he did. He, He but he was filled in by the police. But he did miss a lot. He just knows that Paul's dead. He doesn't know that he looked like he was about to call Sidney Prescott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or any of that. So, I mean, I don't know. But Fran brings Brian his sandwich and a drink, offering to make something for Meg, too, but she politely declines. As Brian tucks in, Meg leans in a little closer to him, revealing that that thing on the old man's hand killed him, and it killed Paul afterwards. And whatever it is, it's getting bigger. I don't know if I was just hungry, but that sandwich looked really good. Yeah. 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 And seeing (laughs) Fran, I was like, man, you had a date tonight. Yeah. And that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah. Now Herb's busy. Yeah, Yeah. I was sad. But Brian learns that that's what she told the cops. And after taking a sip of his soda, he meets her gaze, asking her if he can ask her a personal question. He understands that she's the homecoming queen type and all, but he asks if she's on drugs. Meg scoffs at him, her eyes glossy with tears, telling Brian that he's just the same. She says that he acts like he's different, but he's just like everyone else in this town. Full of shit. Meg walks off furiously for the exit, but when she finds that the door is locked, Brian joins her, asking her to calm down and apologizing to her. Sniffling, she's brought back to the table and he offers her half of his sandwich. Nay's like, eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. Do it for all of us. (laughs) It looks so good. But wouldn't there, you see this, I mean, wouldn't your friend, you're like, hey, 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 what the fuck's going on? Yeah, because it it was getting a little heated. Yeah. Yeah. But it worked itself out. It It did. did. As a tear streams down her face, Brian just mutters, unbelievable. She looks up at him and he tells her that he's just never heard her say the word shit before and asks what it was like for her. A laugh escapes Meg and Brian continues eating his sandwich. <laughs> this was cute. Yeah. But elsewhere in Arborville, Bill leads a search party of officers radioing into Herb and asking if he wants them to head into the foothills next. Herb replies in the negative, requesting they patrol the streets instead. Back at the station, 
Sally joins Herb at the front desk, telling him that he looks exhausted and giving him a cup of coffee. He thanks her, admitting that it's been a long night before taking a sip. Sally sighs, telling him that it's about to get even longer. Herb agrees, responding that with one deputy and six volunteers, he feels like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. Sally reminds him that he's doing all he can, but among his things, Herb finds the piece of his ticket from the pie pan with Fran's note at the top. As he stares at it pensively, Sally asks him what's wrong. Herb just tells her that he's worried about a friend of his before grabbing his hat and jacket and adding that he just guesses he's worried about everyone tonight. He really likes her. Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to go see her. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But back at the pie pan, Fran brings Brian and Meg her last two pieces of pie for dessert. The teens are grateful and she clears their plates, bringing them into the kitchen. As George continues cleaning the kitchen, Fran hears a gurgling noise discovering that the sink is clogged. No! (laughs) (laughs) She snags a plunger, attempting to clear the clog, and after a few failed plunges, George offers to take over for her. He gives it his best shot over and over again, but it remains stubborn. When he puts down the plunger, something pulses and gurgles from inside the drain. George then decides to reach his hand into the stagnant water, his hand wrist deep in the drain. I hated every second of this. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh, what a nice guy. He's dead when he was plunging <laughs> yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I cannot. Garbage disposals, drains. I don't like any of it. Yeah. And just him putting his hand down here. That was enough. It's enough. It's enough. Yeah, I'll find something to shove down there. I don't want to put no. my hand down there. Why don't you try the other end of the plunger? Yeah, oh, yeah, just unscrew it. You know, take the bottom piece off and then use that. Yeah. Fuck it. I don't I don't want to put my hand in there. Anything. There is nothing that a hand can do that a that a stick <laughs> that a, that a stick, stick of wood yeah. can't. I don't <laughs> put a grenade in there. Fuck it. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, we're buying a new restaurant. Just not your hand. <laughs> but Ten's music rises as he fishes around, but he pulls his hand out, a translucent goo coating his fingers. Before he can make heads or tails of what it is, water shoots up at him forcefully, and the blob palms his face, pulling him headfirst into the sink. You know it's coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I still jumped out of my fucking skin. It, yeah. It, I'm ready for it. I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Still scared the shit out of me. Benson said in that interview that they actually did this in reverse. And so uh, the shot starts with the blob on his face and going back into the sink. I wow. Don't know, I don't know why I thought you were going to say they actually did this. Was uh, <laughs> they actually killed this actor. Great shot, yeah. <laughs> with an acidic blob. <laughs> Amazing. But as Fran returns to the kitchen, George's legs kick at the air in vain, his bones crunching and cracking as he's pulled into the drain. Fran drops everything she was holding, screaming George's name, which gets the attention of Brian and Meg. They rush into the kitchen, just in time to see George's mangled limbs, two legs with one shoe missing, and also his arms somehow jutting out of the drain through a mist of blood. As the pipes bulge and pour blood onto the floor, Brian holds Fran back, urging her not to touch it. The three of them watch in horror as George's limbs completely disappear into the drain, which is followed by an eerie silence. You see just enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the whole time we're watching this and you know that the blob is not just going to be satisfied and go to sleep. You mm-hmm. know that there's more. I just keep thinking the front door is locked. The front door is locked. Yeah. Like, we set that up a minute ago. Yeah. I will say that is one thing. This screenplay is tight. Yes. Yeah. There's so much stuff that's set up either as foreshadowing or just little like seeming throwaways. Yeah. yeah. That are going to lead to big things later. Yeah. But even that too, when he tells her, uh, he's like, no, don't touch it. Even that little thing, if he was like a pain in the ass like they're trying to make him out to be, uh-huh. he would be like, oh, I don't give a fuck. That's a distraction. Let's go. He would <laughs> you know run. I mean? yeah. yeah. Me and Meg are fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as Brian steps forward, the blob bursts from the sink in a cascade towards the ceiling where it perches. In that interview with Benson, this is actually a miniature of the kitchen. Wow. Built upside down. Uh, Come uh, on. Yeah. And so they dropped it and then just flipped the footage. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like, of course, that is the smartest way yeah. to go about it. Yeah. Like, of course. But I would never know. No. Mm. Again, if you told me that the sentient blob <laughs> was like, did I get the part? Yeah. yeah. Yes. You got the fucking part. He was really yeah, on set like, that yeah. day. <laughs> there were no other people who auditioned. Yeah. So. Like, <laughs> It was the blob and we canceled the project. (laughs) Default. default. (laughs) And I will say again with these composite shots, because I think you see part of Brian's head in the shot. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's it's just great. Yeah. But the blob slings a long tentacle towards Brian, missing him and shattering kitchenware. Brian grabs Meg and the two run for their lives with the blob in pursuit above them, just barely making it to the safety of the freezer. The blob clearly is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's interesting that the tactics seem different now because now the blob is reaching out at people. Yeah. yeah. It's not just like falling on them or like whatever. Um, that was a limb. Like you're utilizing yeah. pieces of yourself to get people. Yeah. He was just inching his way at first. Uh-huh. He's, yeah. it's, it's like learning. We don't like a... No. no. A learned blob? Not (laughs) in this house. (laughs) (laughs) But they watch as the door to the freezer busts, the blob oozing underneath, but quickly retreating with a groan as a reaction to the cold. Oh. I was like, that's why we keep talking about the fucking weather. (laughs) (laughs) Armed with a hook, Brian and Meg clearly make note of this. I know what you did last summer. Ah, yeah. That's <laughs> two. Yeah. Wow. The Breakfast Club meets I know. Yeah. <laughs> and a few other films I'd yeah. say. <laughs> but we cut to the glass of a window shattering and watch as Fran makes her exit from the kitchen into an alley. She rushes toward the street, checking behind her and shutting herself in a nearby phone booth. Frantically searching for change, she forces it into the machine and attempts to make a phone call. But back in the freezer, Brian and Meg stand with their ears toward the door, listening for the movements of the blob. Upon hearing nothing, Brian takes off his leather jacket and wraps it around Meg, holding her close to him. He promises her that he's going to get them out of here. I think she's moved on from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, Paul who? Yeah. It was one date. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but back in the phone booth, Fran tries to dial, but we see the blob through the glass, slowly encasing the glass of the booth. After a moment, Fran notices it too, dropping the phone with an automated voice on the other end telling her that her call cannot be completed as dialed. Fran screams for help, doing her best to maintain the structure of the booth as the blob tries to force its way inside. With the booth covered from top to bottom, 
Fran reaches for the phone, dialing again for the sheriff's station and finally connecting and asking for Herb. Sally, through the phone, tells Fran that Herb went down to the diner before the line disconnects. Through the glass of the telephone booth and inside the translucent pink slime of the blob, we see Herb's deceased and partially decayed face floating and forever frozen in a silent scream. I couldn't (laughs) fucking believe it. Dude. I couldn't believe it. And then I was like, no way that's him. And then they show the fucking sheriff's star. (laughs) Dude. How are you doing this to me? I think this is one of the most shocking deaths I've ever seen in a horror I film. I couldn't yeah. believe it because we, you know, when you see, yes, yeah. you know what's going to happen. You know the role that this character is going to play. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a redemption arc where he's like, you know what, Brian may not be yes. a, yeah, that yeah, bad yeah. of a kid or whatever. And then you have the love arc with <laughs> Fran. It's like everything we know how this film goes. Yeah. And we know how it goes in the 50s. <sighs> okay. Maybe not in the 80s. Yeah. Because goddamn was I shocked. <laughs> Yeah, see, this is the only part I remember. Mm. That was it. But even the first time when I watched it, I don't know uh, if I must have looked at my phone to check something or whatever. But when I I remember seeing his face, but I didn't see the star. And then I was like, oh, fuck. So one of his people got got. And then the second time when I was doing it to work on things, I was like, oh, no, that's Sheriff. <laughs> I was like, fuck. My jaw hit the floor. And then it went through the floor in a yeah. second. I just, oh, yeah. I, I can like you said nobody's safe yeah and I think they set it up so perfectly in the scene with Sally Uh uh-huh because even if you don't see the star he literally said all I have is one deputy and six volunteers (sighs) yeah and we know where they all are yeah so the second we see anything you're like that is Herb yeah I don't want to believe it it's like what the fuck (laughs) no (laughs) no and for it to have been off screen yeah Mm -hmm. I uh the way that we've set him up, I, I, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, and just an excellent misdirection. Yes, mm-hmm. but Fran screams as from above we watch the blob leak its way inside, shattering the glass of the phone booth and engulfing her. She's dead too. Yeah, yeah. Jaw is now in the basement yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, wow. So yeah. that that love arc, it was complete and total misdirection. Yeah. Well, they ended up together. In heaven, in the blob. Yeah. <laughs> in the blob, yeah. I, I did. I <laughs> the blob does part. <laughs> really? <laughs> but I, I did learn some things on commentary about how this was done from Tony Gardner. The phone booth in this shot, because there are, you see, it's full size. Uh-huh. It starts, and you see Candy Clark in the phone booth, but it switches overhead in that shot to a miniature. Okay. And it's a very, what they said, poorly constructed dummy of Candy Clark. What? Yeah. And that, yeah. In that Q&A, um, Chuck Russell had said that, that that's his favorite gag that they did. Yeah. Was that shot from above, it, it, it's a miniature. And he was like, I feel like you can't see it, that you would not. I'm like, hell no. No. I couldn't believe, I didn't know that until I heard him say it. I mean, obviously, yeah. they didn't really blob this lady. But <laughs> well, I, well, but they blobbed Donovan Lee. You know, maybe they did. Maybe they did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, extremely convincing. And like you said earlier, seamless. Yeah. yeah. But back in the freezer, Brian is armed with a meat hook and he asks if Meg is ready before creaking the door open and leading the way out. He calls out to Fran as they make their way through blue light in what's left of the kitchen. After the slightest noise, Brian swings wildly, 
accidentally massacring a jar of strawberry jam. After cracking a joke, Brian suggests that they get out of here. I do think that that might have been a little nod because the blob in 58 looked like strawberry jam. Oh, okay. I have no proof of this. (laughs) That's pretty funny, though. But Meg reminds him that the front door is locked, but Brian tells her that that's all right because he has a key. Snagging a brick, they head toward the front door. (laughs) It's a skeleton key. Yeah. (laughs) Get through any door. (laughs) But outside the cafe, Reverend Meeker makes his way through the street as the bell of the church chimes. Meeker reconfigures the items he's holding, almost dropping a bottle of liquor that's concealed under his coat. But upon hearing gurgling noises, the reverend steps forward, peering into the alley next to the pie pan. The blob pulsates, changing shape and increasing in size. Meeker drops the bottle and can only mutter, Merciful God. I love that he's allowed to drink, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. You know? <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Yeah. <laughs> I want to judge everybody at the fucking pharmacy, but yeah. you know. Okay. Well, but that wine and whatever. The, the blood? <laughs> yeah, go drink blood. The body not- and the blood? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go drink blood. <laughs> That's all you're allowed to That's drink. That's fine. <laughs> and he's very calm for seeing this shit. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the way that he lives his life, it seems as if this is part of a story that he follows. <laughs> I'm trying not to give things away. <laughs> he keeps track of. <laughs> but the blob oozes itself down into the sewer as Meeker walks over to the front entrance of the pie pan with its windows smashed out. Blob said, too fast. <laughs> <laughs> was he afraid of Meeker? Yeah. Like, that was weird. I thought the blob was always hungry. Like the Spider Man from the song by the cure. <laughs> <laughs> That song's scary, dude. It is. <laughs> like I, I can I I'll listen to it at a certain hour. <laughs> like if it's past eleven, I need the lights on. I think. <laughs> Lullaby. I'm not listening to this before Hell bed. No. Fuck you. <laughs> I love you, Robert Smith. My birthday twin. Yes. Not the lucky. same year. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make it clear. Are you sure? I am pretty sure. I'm not Steve McQueen. <laughs> but meeker stands in darkness peering through the opening of the cafe calling out and asking if anybody is hurt when no one answers he lets himself inside and when he finally makes it into the kitchen lights flickering and shooting sparks he finds an adorable black cat licking up the murdered strawberry jam before scurrying away now this is a different cat i want to point that out because I wanted to see that cat again from the beginning. <laughs> I believe it was a tuxedo we got, cat. We got yeah. another one. We did. I, I more cats, the more yeah. the merrier. Yeah. I'm merrier. <laughs> <laughs> from seeing that cat. But here's the thing. <laughs> Meeker continues towards the freezer where he finds, and for some reason, collects into a glass jar frozen pieces of the blob that made contact with the ice. Once again, just like you said, John Paul, way too fucking chill. Yeah. yeah. You just saw this thing on the chill. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just saw this thing on the street. You saw it slither down into the fucking sewer. Mm-hmm. And then now, what the fuck is this? Yeah. What, you've never seen some shit like this before. You're like, let me, let, let's scoop it up. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I didn't, I understand the curiosity of it. Yeah. 
But I don't. I think if I see something like that go down in the sewer, I don't want to know what that is. Absolutely not. I'm, and we can be curious as we're crying on the way. Home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Meeker peers at the fragments through the glass jar as they shimmer in pink in the light. So on commentary, Russell said that this was the only use of CG in the film. Okay. Really? Is that shimmer? Yeah. He said that was the limits of the technology at the time. As far as what would look good with to his judgment. For this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It looks good. It does. Yeah. And I wouldn't have guessed that either. No. no. But Brian and Meg arrive at the sheriff's station after escaping the pie pan, requesting to see Herb, but Sally has no idea where he is. The phones are ringing off the hook, and Brian asks where Deputy Briggs is, but Sally can't get a hold of him either. It ate everybody, (laughs) stupid. (laughs) I thought that so many times. (laughs) But after putting another caller on hold, she says that the last time she heard from Bill, he was on his way to Elkins Grove. Meg knows the place, and Brian tells her that that's where he found the old man. They rush out of the station, and we cut to Meg's blue beetle arriving at Elkins Grove, the red lights of Bill's police car piercing the night. They exit the car, Meg remarking that it looks like they left in a hurry. And as eerie music plays, Brian calls out to Bill. When he receives no answer, Brian says that he's got to be out here somewhere. And Meg adds, in the woods. In the dark woods. Mm -mm. Brian suggests that they could just wait here. But Meg just sighs, continuing on. Brian puts out his cigarette, joining her, surprised that he's going this far and out of his way to find a cop. They have been treating him like shit. Yeah. They have. Especially this cop. Um, I was going to oh, say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, get out here. Lickety split. I would just be a, <laughs> I'd be an asshole. <laughs> but after venturing further into the forest, Meg stops Brian, telling him that she thinks that she hears something. Suddenly, lights beam through the trees and the wind whips around them. They try to run off, but are flanked by a group of men in white hazmat suits, a helicopter hovering above them, and beaming light into the area. This might scare me worse than the blob. Oh, yeah? This is so fucking scary. This is terrifying. And I I don't even think it had been... No, it couldn't have been written yet, but it's kind of giving Dreamcatcher to me. Yeah? Okay. Honestly? I was getting a lot of... uh last of us or day or daisy i played uh, our days gone days gone yeah days gone again mm. terrifying yeah yeah i mean well when you think about i don't know there's just something creepy about a containment protocol yeah the containment the way that y'all are dressed yeah the way that you're the way that i'm not dressed the way that yeah. i'm not dressed <laughs> and I've, I've been out here in these streets with this fucking thing yeah. yeah and the fact that you guys kind of seem to have a protocol in place mm-hmm. yeah for blob related for yeah. blob related <laughs> tragedy i've been out here inhaling <laughs> blob all night <laughs> i got blob blob <laughs> no 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 <laughs> but they turn to run the other way and are flanked by yet another group of men in white hazmat suits this group carrying rifles no yeah but out steps Dr. Meadows, played by Joe Seneca, telling the men to lower their guns. Through the helmet of his suit, he tells Brian and Meg that they're here to help them. We then cut to Brian and Meg walking within the crowd of white suits, being interviewed by two of them, asking where they're from and if they're experiencing any nausea or diarrhea. 
Brian pushes away from them to talk to Dr. Meadows, who introduces himself and says that they're part of a government-sanctioned biological containment team, simplifying their title as microbe hunters. Through the crowd, Bill finds Brian, asking him, Flag, what are you doing here, boy? Are you fucking yeah. real? <laughs> it's like, really? God, there's not a redeeming quality. Yeah. No. After Brian makes a crack comparing their white coats to trash bags, Bill tells him that these people are here on serious business and don't have time for his bullshit. From the crowd steps Colonel Hargis, played by Jack Rader, and also in his white suit. Meadows learns from Hargis that Bill has been briefed in detail, and Bill says that he's heading back into town now to get everything started. Hargis arranges an escort for him back to town, and Meg directs Meadows' attention over to the crash site, asking what's going on over there. Meadows explains that that's the source of their worries, calling it a troublesome souvenir from space, a meteorite, and he tells them not to get too close to it. Meg doesn't understand, so Meadows offers to explain through a story. As the camera rotates slowly around him, Meadows says that the dinosaurs ruled our planet for millions of years, and yet they died out almost overnight. He asks, why? And then immediately answers his own question. The evidence suggests a meteor fell to Earth containing alien bacteria. Meg asks him if this whole thing is some kind of plague, but Meadows corrects her. It's about prevention. Brian asks if Meadows thinks that this meteor brought some kind of killer germ with it, and Meadows replies that this is something he's expected and prepared for his entire life. Brian assures him that this meteor brought something, but he says if it's a germ, it's the biggest SOB he's ever seen. Yeah, I think germ is a little... Yeah, because I'm like, bacteria? Yeah. That, really? And honestly, I will say that if it is a germ, it's pretty easy to avoid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't have to worry about breathing this in. Yeah, it's yeah. not exactly airborne. <laughs> but elsewhere, the camera dips down from trees to find Lance and Susie, played by Daryl Marsh and Julie McCullough, making out by their campfire. Lance pulls away for a moment, hearing the sound of landscaping equipment and finding a gardener trimming nearby hedges on a ridge. He ponders that the gardener might be some kind of peeping Tom or something, trimming the hedges at this hour? But Susie just suggests that they give him something to peep at, and they continue kissing. The gardener raises his head, revealing himself to be Chainsaw Killer, played by Robert Hammond, wearing a hockey mask and brandishing the aforementioned chainsaw. The shot degrades with film grain, and as Lance realizes aloud that hockey season ended months ago, we find Kevin and Eddie seated in a movie theater, enjoying the hell out of the film that they were not supposed to see. <laughs> this is so good. It yeah. was. Um, first of all, I knew these little shits were going to be here. Oh, yeah. But before, like, when it cuts the scene, it you don't know you're in the movie. Yeah. No. So when there was a chainsaw, I was like, did the blob learn how to use a chainsaw? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> blob operating this man <laughs> he's learning so fast um but no this was this was great yeah i had i'll be honest for that like 30 seconds or whatever i was like what the fuck happened to the movie yeah yeah i was like that's, okay whatever you know but what happened and i i was confused too as i'm writing the script i'm like i got another couple that's about to get blobbed like i gotta write yeah it, you know <laughs> <laughs> i gotta introduce these motherfuckers like i was a little upset uh, it was late it was very yeah. late <laughs> But I think that the thing is, is it wasn't like it was done in Demons where there's obvious immediately from the get go. Yes. Right, this different film style and feel. 
Okay. And so it really was yet another misdirection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was pretty successful. Yeah. But an uncredited patron behind them won't stop guessing what is about to happen next in the film. And when Kevin asks him to be quiet, the patron pelts him with popcorn. Anthony, Eddie's brother and the theater usher, played by Jameson Newlander, tells his kid brother and Kevin to quiet down and to keep their feet off the seats. Why do you say fuck me for? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to deal with this dude behind us that won't shut the fuck up and just threw popcorn at a child? Well, who's, who's supposed to be here and who's yeah, not? Yeah, I was going to say. It doesn't matter. To- <laughs> <laughs> he is a dick. Yeah. Yes. But I don't think they're supposed to be in Okay, scold both of us. Um, And also, <laughs> the older brother, he's one of the frog brothers. Yes. Oh, okay. That's yeah. right. <laughs> they talked about it on commentary that he went on to do The Lost Boys. Very nice. That's so funny. Or, well, is that right? No, he already did The Lost he, Boys. He yeah. previously done The Lost Boys. Yeah. And then he's got this tiny role? Yeah. He's a frog brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as he leaves, Eddie pops his feet back up and encourages Kevin to ogle the woman on screen. He's a bad influence. Uh, I was about to say, Eddie's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But in the projection booth and through the reels, we find Hobbs, played by Frank Collison. Now, I this dude, prolific character actor, he's been in a ton of stuff. I remember him as the guy from The Happening that was like, you guys like hot dogs, don't you? Oh, no. God, that is... Yeah, that's this dude. Oh, my God. I was like, what is this movie? It's like, they got a cool shape? I was like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? A cool, a cool shape? Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) But Hobbs wipes sweat from his brow and gets up to check the air conditioner, only to find that it's not running. He calls on the intercom, asking the manager if the air conditioner is on. And upon learning that it is, he says that it's not working up there and invites the manager to come see for himself. He snags a pair of glasses with lights on them and peers into the air conditioning duct. After looking around for just a second, I got to say, there's a lot of overlap with demons. Yes, (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. But after looking around for a second, something moves very quickly towards Hobbs in a POV shot, gurgling as it does. (laughs) In parentheses, I wrote, it's the blob. (laughs) (laughs) What? No way. (laughs) But Hobbs screams as it seizes him. But the theater manager, played by Pons Mar, ascends the staircase to the projection booth, making his way inside with a flashlight and calling out to Hobbs. As he steps in a little further, a yellow yo-yo dangles from the ceiling, but when the manager looks up, he finds Hobbs plastered to the ceiling by the blob, shivering, desiccated, and encased in pink slime. Fantastic. Yes. It's like, you've been playing yo-yos on the job. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Good mother of God. (laughs) But again, it looks so good. Yes. And you can see it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But his body smokes and his face wriggles in pained moans as the blob reaches its tentacles at the manager. As it wraps around him, he screams, as does the theater audience at whatever is happening on screen. I love these edits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But back at Elkins Grove, Meadows thanks Brian and Meg for the information they've given him about the blob, and he invites them to get into the back of one of their vans. He says that Arborville is under quarantine until they've isolated the organism and checked every living soul for signs of infection. 
No. Nope. Yeah, no. Because this never ends up right, does it? Yeah. Like it never. It's never just like, oh, everybody's clean. Yeah. You're free to go. Yeah. We'll back off. Like that's never. These. This never is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I just feel um, Return of the Living Dead. Absolutely. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Also. Absolutely. Yeah. Dreamcatcher. Yeah. <laughs> How many more do we need? Help us, you remember? Yeah. All right. <laughs> that movie keep... was fucking wild. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, we need to cover that one as well. We really do. I think that was one of the uh, books that was pharmaceutically enhanced, mm-hmm. and still the movie was weird. <laughs> like it's, it's uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. <laughs> but Brian understands what Meadows is really saying. In the meantime, they're prisoners. Meadows responds calmly, telling them that they're his patients. Mm. Brian says that that sounds like the same thing to him, and Meadows asks him once more to step inside their van. Brian puts his arm around Meg, guiding her to a nervous exit, telling Meadows that he appreciates the offer, and great outfit, by the way, but his (laughs) bike's just around the corner, and they can head back to town on their own, no problem. I would not want to get in that van either. No, I would probably run. To be honest, no, I don't know about run. I probably would. Well, I think if you, but oh, they'd catch me. Yeah, 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 I'd be winded in two steps. You'd try, but I would try. Damn it, leaning up against the tree. (laughs) 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 Fucking. Do we chase? No, just yeah, yeah, just 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 tire yourself. But they're quickly surrounded by men in white suits, including Colonel Hargis, who orders them into the van. A dog snarls and barks at them, and they quickly comply, Meadows watching as the doors are closed behind them. As the van speeds away, Meg sits down in the back, but Brian heads straight for the back door. He suggests that they should probably get out of here, hop on his bike, and leave Arborville. As he works on the locked door with one of Moss's ratchets, Meg tells him that that's crazy and that these people are here to help them. Girly pop. (laughs) You can't be that naive. And again, if the story is that this is bacteria, you are in a car with it. Yeah. You're still not getting out of this quarantine. Like, even if that is the if if that's true. Yeah. You're infected. We we both are. No, (laughs) no. And on the cool, though, is, uh, again, I'm not finding much to be upset with the flag about. He still has dude sockets on his fucking jacket. He did, jacket. yeah. He does. So he still got, as long as there's 12. Yes. They yeah. all need to be you there. You better it's count like, that. There, yeah. There's 12. Grab another one and help me break the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right now. <laughs> but Brian retorts that they don't even know who these people are. NASA, CIA, the Royal Canadian Mounties. He says all he knows is that he saw a bunch of unmarked trucks and he thinks this whole thing stinks. Meg tells him that they can't just run out, but Brian says to think of it as looking after their best interests. He busts the door open, but Meg reminds him that her family is in Arborville, people she cares about. As the van passes trees in the background and the red taillights of the van light the side of his face, Brian says that if Meg's smart, she'll come with him. Meg just tells him to go and take care of himself, since that's the only thing that he's good at. I moved houses for you. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? Who pulled you into the freezer? (laughs) What are you talking about? Like... We try to help friends. Yeah. We, like, what What do you mean? Gave you half my sandwich. Yeah. Yes. You didn't accept straw- it. Yeah. Killed that strawberry jam for you. Yeah. You know? We all know it was going to get you. And then subsequently yeah. fed that cat with said jam. I'm a good man. I'm a hero. Yeah. And I still have these ratchets. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> that I'm going to give back to Moss. Yeah. <laughs> 
But before jumping out of the van, Brian remarks that no one else ever volunteered for the job, which is really sad. Yeah. Extremely. Well, I mean, we did get his backstory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Station. But again, I'm trying to take you with me. Yeah. yeah. I'm not like, oh, I'm getting the fuck out of here. He's like, let's go. Yeah. But as he tucks and rolls from the back of the van, <laughs> he looks up to see Meg closing the door behind him. He mutters to himself, Christ flag, a cheerleader before walking away on his own into the night because he's in love. He's in love. I was going to say, so that means you're going back. He's oh, yeah. <laughs> but the van arrives in town, which is filled with citizenry and people in white hazmat suits ordering them around. That, I didn't even think of it until you just said that Brian said it, but the fact that there is no insignia. Yeah. No, dude. Come on. <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> that's just, that's frightening. Yeah. What? What are you from? Who are you? We're the white suits. Yeah. <laughs> that That's doesn't not mean That's anything. <laughs> Just give me three letters. Like, yeah, I won't dude. even know. I won't, I'm dumb. I, I'll accept it. Make something up. We're AAA. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you did have a van. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> We're TCBY. But oh, please be. Please be TCBY. <laughs> But as the back of the van is opened and Meg steps out confused, taking in her surroundings, a woman's voice is heard over a loudspeaker, telling everyone that there is no cause for alarm. As the camera pulls back and we see a crowd gathered outside of the town hall and being checked and herded by white suits, the voice repeats that there is no cause for alarm, and that due to a potential biological hazard, they ask that everyone assembles in an orderly fashion so that the medical staff can clear them. Through the crowd, Meg finds her parents, rushes for them, and they embrace her, asking if Kevin is with her. Meg tells them that she thought that Kevin was staying at Eddie's house, and through the crowd, Eddie's mother, played by Judith Flanagan, appears, saying that she thought that Eddie was staying at their house. These mm. little fucking shits. Yeah. I laugh so hard because Miss Penny goes, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you knew. Yeah, God knows. damn it. When that boy left the house, you knew what they were about to go do. Oh, yeah. And he's a blob or no blob or biological hazard or not. You're both grounded. Oh, yeah. yeah. She snuck out. Dude is clear. We know he's at that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she realizes that they must have gone to see that damn movie. Meg approaches a soldier played by Richard Anthony Crenna, urging him to find her brother at the movie theater. But he tells her that they're checking the town in sections and suggests that she gets back in line, insisting that they've got it handled. Mr. Penny joins his daughter and pokes the soldier's chest, saying it doesn't look like they're handling much of anything, and hits him with the, I'm a taxpayer and I pay your salary. Mm. That always goes over well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The they love when you do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you do? Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Favorite so much. Well, what can I do for you, sir? <laughs> but we don't know that. How can I better serve? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, we yeah. don't know. We don't, know. We don't even know. True. <laughs> He's like, no, you yeah. don't. <laughs> I'm a mercenary. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the I'm fuck? paid by the block. <laughs> oh, You're <fuck>. what? <laughs> <laughs> but the soldier handles it politely but in their argument slash conversation neither of them notice meg sneaking off running toward the movie theater on screen in the theater 
A couple of co-eds, played by Charlie Spradling and Kristen Aldrich, sit across from each other in their living room, recounting that ten years ago tonight. But the annoying patron behind Kevin and Eddie tells his girlfriend that she'll love this part. The killer hot curls them to death. Fed up, Kevin turns around, telling the man that they're trying to watch the movie. This is very gutsy. Yeah. <laughs> I was say Kevin is bold. You are not supposed to be here. And he's like, now see here, sir. <laughs> they're trying to watch the movie. They are, but you He's gotta... like, I pay your salary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, then that's too <laughs> much. I pay your salary. <laughs> you learn from watching his dad. <laughs> he's like, no, you don't. <laughs> But before Kevin can even get his sentence out, and we do see the killer blurry in the background snagging a curling iron, so that he was right. He was yeah. right. Yeah, I think he already saw it, yeah. and now he's watching it again and ruining it for everybody. What an asshole. Yeah. Literally the worst. Blob. Yeah. <laughs> Come yeah. Here, At least do a spoiler alert first at the beginning of this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie patron is snatched up, pulled into a massive gelatinous mass covering the entire ceiling. The co-eds scream on screen with perfect timing before the film burns out and Kevin stands in horror at what he just witnessed. The entire auditorium rises to their feet screaming and it's pandemonium. In a wide shot, we see the blob descending the back wall, the light of the projector beaming through a bubbling hole in its mass. As Meg arrives, tense music rising, she pushes her way past dozens of exiting patrons into the auditorium. Lights flash, and she witnesses the blob making short work of several patrons who couldn't escape in time. A guttural roar heard as it feasts on their bodies among the seats. This looked so fucking mm-hmm. cool. Yes. The lights, too, yeah. added like oh, such yeah. an effect. It was the same thing with Paul, where the light was like kind of dangling, and mm-hmm. yeah. it was dark and light. And mm-hmm. This uh, is an homage to something that happened in the original. Okay. There's a big scene towards the end in the movie theater, uh-huh. but this is obviously much more in-depth, Yeah. much more frightening. Okay. And one thing that I did learn from that interview as well from YouTube is that this theater is a miniature. What? Yeah. <laughs> the special effects designer, he had said that the seats in the auditorium were about the size of his head. Get out of here. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And so the blob is obviously smaller. Yeah. And you see Shawnee Smith there and it's a composite shot again. That's crazy. That's incredible. It's just wild. Yeah. But the husk of a half melted patron is thrown at her and as she turns the body over, it looks a lot like the half-formed replication that MacReady found in The Thing at the Norwegian station. Mm-hmm. It's like, he's in this too? Yeah, <laughs> he's getting work. But Meg finds Kevin and Eddie in the frenzy at the back exit, grabbing them as the blob undulates, rushing right for them. They push through the doors, through a hall, and out of the theater. But as the door closes behind them, Kevin gets his jacket caught in it. Meg rushes to help him, and his frantic fingers try to tear through his jammed zipper. Yep. Yeah. He's like, I told mom I didn't want to wear this yeah. goddamn jacket. <laughs> and now I'm dead. Now I'm fucking dead. You killed me. Tell mom I'm she killed her. <laughs> she killed her baby boy. <laughs> That didn't but happen. It's so, no. But it's, it's so good because it we, this, it's, it was foreshadowed it was. a long time ago. Yeah. But the blob rushes for him under the door and the bolts and the hinges burst off, but they're finally able to get his jacket off and rush deeper into the alley as the blob explodes through the door. This tense moment of her trying to get him unstuck, Eddie 
whoever that <laughs> little kid is, he like seems scared for real. He does. Yeah. Like he does. He's like, come on. <laughs> I think he, he, does a really good he job. thought he was in a comedy and then yeah. <laughs> they surprised like, him with the blob. Yeah. Tough fuck. <laughs> you know, honestly, they did say that in commentary that whenever uh, Shawnee Smith saw Paul getting eaten, uh-huh. eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking too fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> saw Paul getting eaten. Yeah. Uh, she had never seen the blob before. Oh, okay. Oh. And so her first time seeing the blob is it in action. Oh, oh that nice. is awesome. Yeah. And so maybe they tried to scare the shit out of this kid too. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed very upset. His mom's going to be mad. Though. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But after reaching a dead end, Meg urges the boys into the sewer. Through a window overlooking the alley, Anthony calls out to his brother, Eddie, watching as the blob pursues them, barely missing them as they descend into the sewer and close the manhole cover. As they climb down, the blob reaches its tentacles in, seizing Meg's hair, which sizzles off as she's able to pull herself away, falling off the ladder and splashing into the water below. Not the extensions. I know. <laughs> I, and I hope that's a storm drain because... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gray yeah. water. <laughs> we don't want it. No. But at least that does stick with what's going on because the blob is acidic Yes. And the hair's just going to burn away. Yeah. And, and it, it is an easy exit. Yeah. You lose some hair in the process. Yeah. Uh, that's all right. It's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Comparatively. <laughs> but back near Elkins Grove, Brian has found his bike, but he skulks through the trees, avoiding nearby soldiers. Realizing there's no way that he can get away on his bike, he stashes it behind some shrubs and stalks his way over to the crash site. He finds it surrounded by soldiers who stand with meadows, who watches as the meteorite is lifted out of the crater with a machine, looking it over with their flashlights. Meadows admits that they suspected that the conditions of space would have a mutating effect on the bacteria, and a soldier suggests that its activity must have been what threw their satellite out of orbit, and Meadows agrees. Just out with it and being completely honest, Meadows says that their little experimental virus seems to have grown up into a plasmic life form that hunts its prey. He calls it a predator and says it's fantastic. What? I'm fucking pissed. Damn you, you all to hell. Yeah, yeah, he knew. Him. And yeah. I trusted you, yeah. dude. Yeah. No, no. You didn't trust Meadows? No. He seemed trustworthy. Yeah, out of, but the, just whatever he stands for. I don't know. It all seemed whatever very Whatever he weird. stands for. <laughs> <laughs> well, he seemed like a scientist up until the van thing. Yeah, so I was going to say. Yes, I was yeah. listening until he was like, just get in the van. It's like, and what? Was like, all right, never mind. You're, You're being a little little yeah. in there. <laughs> you dropped the blob on me, <laughs> <laughs> baby. You dropped <laughs> you better All use right. that song on Monday, dude. <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck. <laughs> but when Jennings, another scientist played by Robert Axelrod, approaches him with news that the organism is growing at a geometric rate and that it's at least 100 times its original mass, Hargis says that this will put the U.S. defense years ahead of the Russians. Meadows nods like, hell yeah, but Jennings continues that at this rate, by next week, there might not even be a U.S. That part. Yeah. I understand that this was like, this is y'all's little Frankenstein project or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's out and loose. Yeah. Maybe fucking high five when the blob is caught. And yeah, yeah you guys then. are just like, yeah, man, we did a real good job. <laughs> hell yeah. People are like being killed right now, like just yeah. down the street. So maybe let's contain that. <laughs> and Priorities. The fact that, yeah. Um, Meg was dropped off and <laughs> Brian wasn't in there and nobody's out looking for him. 
Oh, yeah. Well, it was kind of funny that they opened the door when she gets there. They're like, why is this unlocked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, nobody says anything about that. Yeah. Because uh, he did say it was locked. Yeah. It was. He had to break it. Yeah. And then he's just not there. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Yeah. But Meadows hushes that nonsense, saying that they just need to contain it properly. He says, as far as the locals are concerned, this is just a medical quarantine, but nobody gets in or out. And it's a good thing none of them are around here. <laughs> Speaking especially, at full volume. Especially yeah. that kid in that leather jacket. Boy, did he piss me off on sight. <laughs> but in a nearby tent, the men take off their helmets. Jennings telling Meadows that he doesn't agree with any of this and that people's lives are at stake. Meadows responds irritated, telling him that he knows that, but that this isn't one of Jennings' textbook exercises. It's an experiment in biological warfare. Brian hides in the bushes outside, able to hear everything clearly somehow. As Meadows explains, <laughs> <laughs> they all had mics <laughs> and speakers just blasting. <laughs> but Meadows explains that the organism is the greatest breakthrough in weapons research since man split the atom, and that what they do here will affect the balance of world power. He agrees that there are lives at stake, whole nations, in fact. And he declares that to be far more important than a handful of people in this small town. He reminds Jennings that that's his cross to bear alone. And he tells him to carry out his orders. So this is a twist from the original. Yeah. Because the original is just an alien that crash landed, basically. Okay. And this is this big government conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. You know, got echoes of the Cold War. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's pretty wild. But I mean, in the 50s, you know that an, an alien invader represents, it It always yeah. represented yeah, yeah. the Russians. More um, than, yeah. They, they, America was very transparent with their films, man. <laughs> Especially their science fiction. They're like, it's an allegory. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, we know. It's all you ever fucking talk about. <laughs> so yeah, I understand. Yeah. But, and, but how can he tell him that you want me to carry out my orders? I'm watching... These poor people get taken by this blob. We're hearing about it. We're you're this isn't for you alone to you know what I mean? We've mm -hmm. gotta deal with this shit. He's like <laughs> Richard Jenkins and stepbrothers when he's like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't do He dude. doesn't. <laughs> but I mean this is kind of like indicative of a lot of things in science fiction where the person who created the monster thinks that they can contain it. Yeah. And ends up, you know, getting their ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, was gonna, waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't survive. <laughs> I've, I've made that mistake before. Get their ass that. Don't. Um, God damn it. Or he, he's like, some days you'll be the blob and some days I'll be the yeah, blob. There, <laughs> and then we'll get a third oh, guy. And grovel at my feet. <laughs> <laughs> but suddenly, a soldier alerts Hargis to a sighting of the blob in Arborville and hands a radio to him. Another soldier stands outside of the theater with Anthony, who shouts frantically over the radio that the blob has Kevin and Eddie and Meg down in the sewers and they have to do something. Brian overhears this call in the forest as Meadows asks Hargis for a schematic of the sewer system in Arborville, suggesting that they contain the organism down there, alive. Hargis asks, what about the civilians? The camera presses in on Meadows, who mulls it over for a moment, but comes to his conclusion. They're expendable. Expendable. Mm. That's a big fancy word for a little horrible thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
a little <laughs> it's, it's very horrible it's a little bad brian overhears this but before he can rise to his feet a soldier points a rifle into his back Brian responds swiftly, smashing his faceplate with a ratchet and running away, which Meadows notices and alerts everyone to stop him. He grabs a nearby microphone, announcing, Attention! We have an infected civilian trying to escape. I hope he didn't drop that. The ratchet? Yeah. He's, he's like, 11? Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's two weekends. Right. <laughs> Where in the woods were you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're going right now. There must have been something really important going on otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) But ordering his men to stop Brian before he reaches Arborville, Brian finds his motorcycle in the shrubs, but is pursued by soldiers on motorcycles of their own. The music grows frantic as Brian is followed by men in trucks and even by a helicopter overhead. His uh, wanted level is like (laughs) five. But he wipes out momentarily, but gets back up and continues riding as the soldiers fire at him. Through a clearing, we see Brian fast approaching the broken down bridge from earlier. And as he speeds towards it, one of the trucks absolutely eats it, careening off the side of the bridge. But in slow motion, Brian makes the jump, successfully landing on the other side as the lights of the helicopter beam down above him and another truck of soldiers breaks hard at the edge. They fire at him as he gives him the finger, disappearing into the greenery. <laughs> it's funny, again, like he has repaired his bike, mm-hmm. and so he makes the jump. Yeah. In the script, his bike is starting to fail again. Okay. And he's like, please, 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 please. This <laughs> <laughs> fucking terrified because he thinks it's going to happen again. Yeah, yeah. But um, I did hear on commentary that they got a stunt driver to do this jump. Uh-huh. And when he did it, both of the tires of the bike exploded. Oh, fuck. That's bananas. Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting. They had also said that Kevin Dillon does a lot of his own writing in this film. Yeah. He just didn't do that. Well, understandably. <laughs> I thought it was funny because after he does that, it seems, and then he gives him the finger and he drives away, mm-hmm. it seems like the helicopter couldn't make the jump. So it was yeah. like, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> It also stayed yeah. behind. Yeah, that is weird. It's like, sick. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted it more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just let him, let him have this. <laughs> Give him a head start. <laughs> but Brian continues on through dirt and rough terrain until he finds an aqueduct leading into the sewer. He hides next to it as the helicopter passes him by overhead, and as soon as it's gone, he shines his headlight into the entrance to the sewer. Meadows arrives back in town with Hargis, entering a clear tent and given the rundown of the sewer schematics by a soldier at the command post, played by Peter Crombie, Crazy Joe Devola. He was in Seven, too. Yeah, he was. I forgot about that, and I think we made the same reference. Yeah, of course. But he tells them that the whole town is sitting on a system of aqueducts, and if they close down certain valves underground, they can contain the organism. In the sewer itself, a soaked Meg guides Kevin and Eddie through the darkness and rushing water. Eddie is pissing himself scared, promising that if they get out of here, he'll never sneak into the movies again. Meg assures him that it's going to be okay, and that they just need to find their way out. But a group of soldiers also enter the sewer, unbeknownst to the group. Meg guides the children through waist-high water, noticing a rat sitting on a floating piece of debris. She looks away from it for a second, telling the children to watch out for it, but when she turns back, it's gone. She eyes another rat, because it's a sewer. There's plenty. Yeah, I was like, they live here, so be respectful. (laughs) Yeah. But this rat is floating on another piece of garbage when it's suddenly sucked under the surface of the water. 
Bubbles burst up in waves as the blob rushes for them, and she forces Kevin and Eddie to climb a nearby pipe. Before Eddie can make it out of the water, he is seized by the blob and pulled underneath. Kevin yells for his sister to rescue him, and to her credit, she dives into the water. Yeah, I don't know. That thing... It's in the water. We know what it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know. Um, I was like, wow, the blob really was mad at you for seeing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's got to make an example out of you. The blob is for the box office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to get a sequel here and you're fucking. <laughs> but after an eerie moment of silence, Meg reemerges alone and she looks around. But then Eddie emerges too. In the clutches of the blob, his face melted away into a skull, his jaw hanging off on one side. Meg screams, rushing to join her brother on the pipe, climbing up through metal grates as the blob gathers massive underneath them, a hole at its center like a yawning mouth. This is so good. Because yeah. it's almost like the blob wearing Eddie's clothes. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it looks so good. <laughs> In that Q&A... They were saying that, I guess, that people had comments about the fact that Eddie died. Yeah. Or that we see him. Yeah, yeah. And um, Chuck Russell was like, the blob doesn't care. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, I worked very hard for all of the kids to have fun on set and be comfortable and have a good time. He was like, I'm worried about the real children, not the fake children in the movie. Yeah. He was like, but the blob does not care. Yeah, that that's my note is he's just gone. Yeah. You're there's no reasoning with the blob. No. He's like, oh fuck. Is he under twelve? Oh, yeah, sorry yeah. about that. I'll, I'll come back. Is that your kid brother's friend? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll put him back together. Yeah. <laughs> I just I think that was the thing is that you didn't see stuff like this back then. No. no. I always think back to Silver Bullet. Yeah. Yeah. Where they show that kite. Yeah. yeah. That's all covered in blood and they're like, This means a kid. You imply yeah. it, it's yeah. implied. Eaten but by no, a werewolf. It's like, look at Eddie. Look <laughs> yeah. at his face. And he's like, Oh yeah. I'm in bony agony. <laughs> my skin's gone ma'am and you gotta just live with it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't have a cow <laughs> don't have a blob man you should have said cow a blobka dude yeah. that's a lot easier <laughs> eat my flesh <laughs> alright let's move All on right, yeah, we need to get past this quickly <laughs> in fact cut that over <laughs> But as Meg struggles to join her brother on the other side of the grate, unable to climb up, she almost falls into the mouth of the blob. But suddenly, three soldiers appear, firing at the blob and getting its attention. When the sergeant, played by Moss Porter, tells them not to fire, he's immediately seized and devoured by the blob. With the blob distracted, Meg urges her brother to go to town hall, where he'll find their parents. He makes his way to the street and takes off running, and Meg has no choice but to dive from the pipe back into the water. She climbs as fast as she can up an incline with the blob in pursuit, her escape seeming impossible, but Brian appears out of nowhere, grabbing her hand and rescuing her. They hop onto his bike and ride away, but once they reach a dead end, they see the blob amassing in the distance. Brian revs his engine, Riding up and around the blob on the wall, looking cool as all hell. I was gonna say yeah. <laughs> the blob was so impressed he didn't even swipe at him. No. <laughs> it's like, like damn cow a blob dude. <laughs> 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 
the blobs like a Pokemon. <laughs> you can only, you can say, only say his, his name. <laughs> but they round the corner and immediately wipe out into a puddle. Brian checks on Meg, who tells him that she's fine, but just urges him to ditch the bike and make a break for it. I just had a couple things here. The fall was hilarious yes. after the epic getaway and yeah. then to just crash land. Um, <coughs> but their getaway on the bike did make me think of Bill and Stan in It. Hey. And also they're in a fucking sewer. Very okay. good. But, you know, Frankie D. Mm-hmm. Just throwing yeah. it out there. Russell's like, no, that wasn't any. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall any literature that took place in a sewer. <laughs> Next question. <Yeah. laughs> But as they continue on, they're immediately accosted by a soldier played by Bill Mosley. Dude, I was like, is that Bill Mosley? And then he talked and I was like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's Bill Mosley. What's funny is if Rob Zombie did have a blob remake, he would have been in that one too. A thousand percent, <laughs> yeah. His faceplate cracked and stained in blood. He pants in horror, telling Brian that it got the rest of his team. But Brian just asks how to get out of here. And the soldier is too busy reliving the trauma of what just happened. And he says that when his team was inside the blob, they were trying to scream. As the blob rounds the corner in pursuit, the three of them make their exit. His arm bleeding, the soldier leads them to a ladder. And Brian helps the soldier over to it. But when they look up, they see the flashlights and weapons of waiting soldiers peering into it from the street level. Brian tells them that they're coming up, but Meadows appears above him ordering the men to close the sewer to contain the organism. Hargis, who is nearby, is hesitant, but complies with the order, and we watch the manhole cover eclipse the light of the street above. Evil. Yeah. And that's tough, man. Again, you're, these are, if these are his men, you're having to leave them behind. You're mm-hmm. having to just kind of go along with what this dude's telling you. I can get obviously the people to him that live in this town are expendable, but that's your dude down there. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, God damn. And then what they do over it made me laugh out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Brian climbs the ladder and tries to open it, but we see Meadows direct a van to park on top of it, sealing them in. Yeah, dude. It's like they're not getting out. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's that's done. Yeah, you can just stop thinking about that. But the soldier pleads with Hargis on the radio, but Brian snatches it from him, pleading with Meadows, who just listens silently with no response. Brian gives up as the soldier notices that the water is rising around them. Fear fills his face as Brian and Meg put their back to a wall. Meg tells Brian that she thought he was going to take care of himself, and he jokes that he guesses he blew it. But he then sincerely tells her that he's sorry, and she replies that she is too but they notice sticking out of the back of the soldier's suit is a grenade launcher. Brian snags it, asking if it works, but the soldier just crumbles, saying that it won't do them any good. Brian calls to Meadows on the radio, telling him that if he won't listen to him, then he should listen to this. (laughs) And it's, I think, Chuck Berry. (laughs) (laughs) But as Meg shields her ears... Brian fires the launcher up the ladder, bursting through the manhole cover and exploding the van above it in a ball of flames, sending surrounding soldiers flying and probably killing the driver inside. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) But I guess that's all right. (laughs) But the explosion is heard at the town hall, and soldiers send reinforcements to the area. 
Meadows and Hargis reach their feet as the score grows very Carpenter-esque, and Meg and Brian climb out of the sewer. So there was no damage to the ladder. There's no damage to the manhole. There's no none of that. Just the cover mm-hmm. and the van. And the van. That That's was it. my note that the ladder was completely intact and the fire was gone. And yeah. <laughs> and they're not on fire either. No. <laughs> but Brian finds a rifle on the ground and rushes for it, aiming it at Meadows and the soldiers. Bill just happens to be there too, and he aims his gun at Brian, ordering him to put the gun down. I think even even if I've got a problem with you, these are outsiders in our town. Yes. You're my problem. Yeah. So I'm I feel like I would be a little more inclined to side with the person that I know mm-hmm. than these people in here in white suits telling us to put our weapons down. Yes. They're not Arborvillians. Yeah. yeah. And but then again, Bill's like, Well, I know Brian I know Brian, but I also know he's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are. But Brian shouts that it's all a lie. But as Hargis raises his gun to Brian, Meadows ordering him to shoot, a standoff commences between the three men. As a crowd gathers, Bill suggests everyone just lower their weapons, but Meadows has a master plan. He tells all of the locals that Brian is actually infected, and he'll spread a plague through the entire town and kill everyone. If he's infected, we're all infected. Yeah. We're all breathing the same air. Yeah. yeah. The crowd gasps, but Brian calls out to the deputy, asking him to think for a second. Does he suppose an army of men in plastic suits show up every time a meteor falls? He asks how he thinks they got here so quickly. How did they even know when to come? The wheels turning in Bill's mind. Nobody notices the blob slowly creeping its way (laughs) out of the sewer. The blob is still a problem. We can do this drama later, dude. (laughs) But Brian tells the town that the meteor was man-made some kind of biological warfare experiment that went wrong. But Meadows has had enough, snatching Hargis's rifle from him and aiming it at Brian. But just as he pulls the trigger, the blob wraps around his ankle, pulling him towards the sewer, an errant shot winging Bill. Half of his body sticking out of the sewer, we watch as the blob fills Meadows' suit from the inside. It engulfs his body and pulls him under. The blob was like, father, (laughs) you stop pointing that gun at my dad. (laughs) It just decides out of the fucking blue, out of the fucking blob. (laughs) No, but this was great. Oh, yeah, it was. And it looks incredible as it fills his suit. Yes. Like the, the it's just brilliant. Plus, that's what he gets anyway. One thousand percent. But Hargis gathers at the entrance of the sewer, peering down, and after he draws his pistol, he orders his men to kill the blob. As Bill reaches his feet, the soldiers unload their weapons into the sewer before Har <laughs> before Hargis tosses a bomb inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even tell anybody to stand back. No. 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 <laughs> well, we learned that the sewer contains just about everything. Yeah. It's fine. (laughs) But the bomb explodes, which leaves the crowd in a stunned awe. As the smoldering wreckage of the van crackles in the background, Hargis holsters his weapon, smugly remarking, chew on that slime ball. Listen, (laughs) he is living his action hero fantasy. I love that for him because it doesn't stop. Like he (laughs) he doesn't stop. No. No. But the ground begins to rumble around Hargis and his soldiers, metal debris clattering. 
Hargis asks what's happening, and as the townsfolk begin to back away, Brian says that he thinks that they just pissed it off. Suddenly, the blob bursts massive from underneath them, crashing through the asphalt as tall as a building. Hargis pulls the pins on the grenades on his suit before he is crushed by the blob and absorbed. If that is not an action hero death, yeah, I don't know yeah, what yeah. is. What's funny is they point out on commentary that if you look closely, those gr- those grenades detonate. Yeah. Yes. But they mean nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, not, not at all. <laughs> I thought I was like, oh, hopefully we'll get something. Then you just see the little bangs. Yeah. The lights, oh, yeah. Like, that right. was it? He's yeah. like, really, dude? You really thought that was going to do something? <laughs> but we follow the blob as it oozes gigantic through the streets, wreaking havoc and seizing soldiers at will to add to its mass. The townsfolk rush past Reverend Meeker, but he stands in awe of the blob, telling them that they don't understand. This has all been prophesied. In the frantic frenzy, Bill directs traffic, guiding Meg and other citizenry to the town hall as a soldier readies a flamethrower. He arcs a blast of fire onto the blob, but the blob seizes the weapon, blocking it and exploding it into a ball of fire, engulfing the soldier and also covering the reverend in flammable liquid and flames. How about a little fire scarecrow? (laughs) (laughs) He had his fire materia equipped. (laughs) But as he clatters to the ground engulfed, Meg rushes over with a fire extinguisher, putting him out. As the blob reaches for her, she instinctively blasts the fire extinguisher at it, and it recoils. She remembers. It's the cold. It can't stand the cold. I feel like that's something that we really should have just kept in our back pocket since we left the freezer. Yeah. Honestly. When you first notice that, file it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's you're going to need that mm-hmm. information. It's like, well, that was weird anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to not like, you know what? Forget it. We got to yeah. get out of here. Let's, yeah. not, let's not think too much about it. <laughs> but as she continues to blast it, Bill drags the reverend to safety inside the town hall and they all retreat, closing the door behind them and barring it as the blob tries to break through. At Moss Garage, the doors burst open as Brian has commandeered the snowmaker that Moss was working on and also using as a beer cooler earlier. Mm-hmm. Moss, however, is at the town hall and he takes over for Meg, coating the door with a fire extinguisher he found on the wall. But Brian rides past the tents, making his way through the street and smashing through the debris of the van he exploded and probably the smoldering corpse of the driver he killed, I think. <laughs> 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 but at the town hall, The reverend sits singed, covered in a blanket and quoting scriptures. As the blob reaches for them under the door, Moss blasts its limbs, keeping it at bay. Bill tries to put a bookshelf in front of the door, but the blob reaches through it, wrapping around his waist like a bubbling belt, snapping his spine and folding him in half as it pulls him through. There's a few films that we've seen stuff like this in, and it gets yeah. me every <laughs> fucking time. It's tough. And this looks great. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say, I love this version of it. Yes. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Meg is sickened, and Mrs. Penny shields her son's face in horror. I will say, Garden Tool Massacre, Massacre doesn't look too bad <laughs> at, this, <laughs> at this point. We just saw a man killed. Yeah. Yep. But outside... Brian continues onward through the smoke and flames covering the city, parking right in front of the town hall, where the blob has wrapped itself around the entire front of the structure. So I learned on commentary that this is actually, because they filmed in Abbeville, Louisiana for a lot of it. They did film in California for bits too, Mm -hmm. but the town that they found in Louisiana was doubled for Arborville. Oh, okay. Very conveniently named. Yeah. Yeah. 
But um, whenever it comes to the blob at the end and all the stuff that we see, this is a scale miniature. Come really? on. Yes, they made a miniature of the entire town. Damn. And then just put the blob and used where necessary. Yeah, yeah. But it's just wild. That's incredible. Yeah. Again, in shots like this, when you see him right up on the snowmaker, you're like, this is another composite. Yeah. It's just wild. But Brian switches the machine on, spraying a steady stream of snow onto the blob, causing it to recoil and shrink before it amasses in front of the truck, curled up like a giant pulsating brain. I was a little disappointed that we didn't get a, hey, chill out or something. Because <laughs> yeah. literally, if I was there, I would have said it out loud, even just for myself. With a dry cool wit like right. that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, well, he's like, well, Hargis already had a line, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just kill for it. respect. I'll actually, yeah. <laughs> he tried. <laughs> but Brian shifts into gear, heading straight for it. But the blob just knocks the truck over, sending it flipping into the street. That's why he didn't say anything. Okay, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Meg peeks her head out from the town hall, screaming for Brian, who sits upside down in the driver's seat. She snaps into action, retrieving a gun from a fallen soldier as the blob covers the truck. The soldier's arm melted to the ground. He rises up, weakly begging Meg for help as she just steals his bag, too. He, yeah. <laughs> he's literally asking for help, and she's like, shut up, science yeah. bitch. <laughs> I need this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once she makes sense of the rifle, she fires at the blob, distracting it long enough for Brian to turn right side up in the cab of the truck. Meg climbs to the top of the snowmaker, which appears to be dislodged from the cab, firing at the blob, antagonizing it, which, again, she has a dry cool wit. Yeah. Yes. But she readies a bomb that she stole from the soldier's pack and goes to leap off to make a proper exit, but gets her leg caught and dangles precariously from the edge as the bomb inches closer and closer to detonation. That fall made me laugh so hard. <laughs> that was the funniest shit. I, <laughs> she tried. She yeah. tried. <laughs> dude, and that's another thing. I don't know why she is not talked about more. No, dude. Because she is a fucking badass. Yeah. But that dive, just for her to be like, oh man, it looked so funny. Imagine watching that through the window. You're like, yes, yes, yes. She's going to do it. Meg's got, oh, oh. <laughs> No. Oh, no, she sucked. Yeah. What's oh. happening? She's oh, it's eating leg. her right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Damn. It's like the budget ran out and they're just describing the rest of the film. <laughs> Houston, we have a blob. <laughs> Brian is able to free himself thanks to Meg's distraction and rescues her from certain death and they run as fast as they can. Mr. Penny exits the town hall, calling out for Meg, and watches as the snowmaker explodes, sending a rush of cold air and snow all over the town. It coats the blob, freezing it to the street, shimmering pink and flattened. Covered in snow, Meg and Brian reach their feet, Brian remarking, what a rush. I was like, it's fucking road warriors? Yeah. What, <laughs> what is this? He should have said that was cool. Ah. Mm, very good. You should have written. Chuck <laughs> Russell, Frankie D, and Nay. Right, <laughs> <laughs> said you didn't have nothing to do with this movie. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I was busy. <laughs> but the two embrace, and the crowd gathers outside in awe of the artificial snowfall. Moss tosses a snowball at Brian, reminding him that he told him it would snow and that he needs to have faith. So cute. Yeah. Surveying the damage, Moss then wonders if he's covered for this sort of thing. 
but he then calls out for a dump truck so that he can transport the blob's bespeckled body to the ice house before dawn. But after a tight shot of the surface of the blob, appearing crusted and shining like gemstones, we crossfade to a field of wheat sometime later, finding a large brown tent erected in the center of a field and surrounded by parked cars and trucks. Reverend Meeker's voice is heard, preaching a sermon. As the camera glides over his congregation inside, he proclaims that wormwood falls from heaven, consuming sinner and saint alike. He asks who shall be lifted up to rapture when the judgment trumpet blows. His face slick with burns, his hair long and wearing Dr. Wolfula's sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) He answers his own question. None but the faithful, brothers and sisters. None but the faithful. Expiation! (laughs) (laughs) Very good. The crowd affirms his sermon, and a gospel singer played by Portia Griffin begins singing a hymn accompanied by piano. After his sermon, the reverend drinks from a flask, taking off his sunglasses and looking at himself in the mirror. An old woman, played by Opaline Bartley, approaches him, asking him when the day of reckoning will be. His left eye white, he tells her it will be soon. He picks up the glass jar in his scarred hand that he had in the diner, and inside are the thawed remnants of the blob. As it wriggles alive, Reverend Meeker promises that the Lord will give him a sign. We fade to black and the credits roll. So, what did you guys think of the blob? Before we do that, (laughs) I did read kind of conflicting things. We were talking a little bit off mic that some said that this was meant to set up for a possible sequel. Uh And others said that it was just a tease that was not meant at all to be set up for a sequel. Mm. So I don't know which one it was. I'm glad that there weren't. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that it was and that it was a similar situation to Beware. The blob mm. where it just didn't do well. So they didn't. Oh, shit. Okay. But I, I mean, again. That's probably fair. I yeah. had no hand in this. <laughs> I don't know. But um, but yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think of it? Um, I don't know what's scarier of him having that or the or the blob. I mean, I mean, that was my exact thought. Yeah. The fact that there was a giant blob that ate everyone indiscriminately. But this is the real villain. Yeah. <laughs> like that's terrifying. I um I loved this movie. I really really like this movie. Uh this is a very solid horror remake. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the shit out of it. I loved all the special effects. Uh I don't think there was anything wrong with the story. I think everything there was a, a beginning, a middle and an end. Everything happened for a reason. Uh, them roughing up the kid and kind of, you know, whatever I get it, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, I guess it kind of fit with everything that was going on, but damn that, that was such an amazing movie. Yeah, I completely agree. I figured that this would be campy and fun. I did not expect to really, really enjoy it as much as I did. And like you were saying, there's no aspect where it's like, yeah, you know, the story doesn't make a lot of sense, but the effects are great. Like, yeah. everything does its job. Everything pulls its weight. The performances are really great. The story's really great. And the effects are just fucking, it's the cherry on top. Like, this is such a blast. I think what shocks me the most is, again, I was kind of thinking the same thing. 
is that it's going to be a little cheesy, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't expect a tightly written screenplay. No. And it is tight. There's foreshadowing. Yes. There's character arcs. Yeah. There's small seeds set up early that come to grow later. Mm-hmm. And so much misdirection. Yeah. So much deflection. In such a short run time, like they're really able to accomplish a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was honestly shocked at how well put together it is. Yeah. I really did think this was just going to be, like you said, a showcase for the special effects. Yeah. Right. Which it is. Yeah. Yes. But it's also so much more. Yeah. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed this far more than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also wonder how the hell, and I know that I was told that I saw this, but I don't remember. No. How did this not come up until now? Yeah. Yeah. Again. Well, I think too a lot when we do, we're, we're younger, we do, we're exposed to certain things. And then like me, I didn't remember any of this except for the phone boot scene. That was it. Mm-hmm. Everything else was like, I've never seen this shit before. Yeah. But when I seen that, I was like, that I know. I was like, that I remember. Anything else was like, so for me, it was a fucking fresh watch. Yeah. Except for that tiny little bit. Other than that, like I, I might as well say I'd never seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I just blown away. Yeah. But I, I guess that can lead us into ratings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the positive side, there are just, it's too many positives yeah Yeah. i mean the screenplay as we said the special effects the production design the way that they can go in and out of these full scale real and then sets and then miniatures and then like i never uh, composited shots yeah never am i like well look there's one time that Kevin Dillon runs in front of the screen and he's clearly in front of a green screen. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. It's, it's only funny because everybody else in the town is lit differently, but he's like looking around yeah. like, oh my God. But <laughs> that's it. That's the only time that I was like, all right, that might yeah. be a little weird. But everything else, it's like I'm never taken out of it by that. No. And there are shots that you can kind of tell are composited, but you're like, this is so good. It, who cares? Yeah, like, it but, doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it doesn't even affect it. It doesn't take you out of it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the work that they put in on, on this blob Mm-hmm. the puppeteering of it yeah the design of it and how fucking difficult it must have been to maneuver it yeah to get all slimy every day yeah like it's just i mean that's just dedication to your craft mm-hmm. and it really is bottom line just exactly what you want from a remake it takes things from the original it improves on them for the modern time yeah and it pays respect to it and I, I just uh, really just enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, from my opinion, having seen both of them recently, it's better than the original. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Yeah. All right. I don't want to piss off anybody that loves it. No, have your opinion. Oh, yeah. I had a controversial <laughs> Dawn of the Dead opinion. John Paul and I both. Yeah. Which so. I <laughs> could not disagree more. <laughs> The comfort of George Romero's classic. All right, we're not talking about that here. <laughs> we can't do this We're not again. doing this here. It's the 70s. All right. <laughs> Tin for Okay, moving on. All right. I should have even and brought yes, it up. Yes, I know he's in the remake in a cameo role. <laughs> so both of them have him, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> um i you know in all honesty i really i don't know that i can even really think of any negatives this film it doesn't have the nostalgic pull for me because it's kind of feels brand new yeah but i really do enjoy it and it's one that i will watch a lot i think Mm -hmm. but i just want to call out again the incredible misdirections 
How often do you watch a film from really any era and you're like, I can't believe this just happened? Yeah. yeah. You know, all the films that we watch, it's very difficult to be shocked. Mm-hmm. And this film shocked me twice. Yes. Yeah. Like very much. And so that that counts for a lot for me to be that surprised. Mm hmm. And I did, I did arrive at the table with a score, but I am gonna bump it up a little bit more. All right, because I, the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, God damn, this is yeah. great. Yeah, <laughs> like there's nothing you know that really sticks out that you're like, well, but then this would be a thing, you know. Yeah. But for me, out of ten amorphous organisms, I am gonna give the blob nine amorphous organisms out of ten. I came here with an eight. It went to an eight point five while mm. we were on break. <laughs> <laughs> and then now it's a nine i there's there's nothing egregious there's nothing that is like you know it kept getting bigger like the blob mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good very good but i will now open the floor to you yeah i i i agree man i don't really see anything for me to complain about um i I even said on my letterbox review, same thing. It's just a solid movie. Yeah. Like there's there. It's hard for me to sit there and be like, well, that though. And then it's like, no, no, no. Because there, I feel like there isn't ever a chance for that to happen. But I, I, I agree, man. Everything was really good. The effects. Yeah, you can tell, but I mean, it's, I feel like even, for what you can tell, it's hard to tell they did it. Mm-hmm. And then you see how good and flawless it everything is with the movie. The transitions are great. Everything is it's it's pretty damn good. I think the only thing that I'll ding it for, and that's more on me, is like you said, not have had this in the rotation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh me not knowing or watching it more as I grew up or whatever. Um, but no, I, I fucking loved the shit out of this movie and I would recommend anyone to watch it and to anyone. And I won't even lie. This is a movie that I can put on in a couple days or mm-hmm. tomorrow and be like, all right, sure. Leave it on. Yeah. The pacing. Yeah. Yes. It goes yeah. quick. Um, so for me on a scale of one to 10 amorphous organisms, I'm also going to give the blob 1988 a nine. Uh, I, it'd be a 10 if I watched it more as a kid, Mm -hmm. but, and that's just me. Do you know what I mean? But no, yeah, I can't, I told your sister Trace that I'm having a problem figuring out any way to give this movie under a nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said that after he finished it. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing that can make me go lower than that. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's no reason why I should give it anything lower than that. Yeah, no, I completely agree with both of you. I mine raised too because I came with an eight point five. Yeah, but the more and we had so much fun talking about it, and the more you just realize that everyone gave it everything that they got: the writing, the directing, the acting, the effect. I mean, every part of it. The seamless fucking back and forth of how they even made the blob, mm-hmm. the miniature work, that shit fascinates me like it's so endlessly interesting and it comes together in such a cohesive way that i mean i'm just in awe like it's really really incredible and the bottom line like we always say like you were saying earlier if you're going to remake a film there needs to be a reason for it Mm -hmm. don't remake fucking train to busan just to put it in english don't do shit like that remake it for a reason they remade this 
for a reason. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was like, well, I just wanted to direct something. So I figured the blob was established. He got to do a fucking Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And he still came back to this. This was not, oh, let me just bang out a movie and then, you know, doors will open. So much went into this and it's so apparent. Um, But yeah, no, I, I loved this. This was fantastic on a scale from one to 10 amorphous organisms. You got it. I'm also giving the blob 88 a nine. This was fantastic. Oh, yeah. And will definitely be thrown into the rotation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I would say that this was (laughs) (laughs) unblobbelievable. We got to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all from us at Podmortem. What would you rate the blob and what should we watch next? Let us know on Twitter at the Podmortem. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and like our Stairhole Productions page on Facebook. Be sure to follow each of us on Twitter at TravisMWH, at Blood and Smoke, and at RealStreeter84. Thanks again to Original Cinematic for sponsoring this week's episode. Please consider pledging to our Patreon and stay tuned until after the music for a special thank you to our Windigo Gitter patrons. And remember, if you can identify a problem, solve it as soon as possible. If left unattended, you never know what it might grow into. Until next time. Thank you for staying tuned. We want to give a very special thank you to all of our Windigo Getter patrons. Woo! Yeah! Yeah, very good. (laughs) A special thank you to... Chris Ontiveros, Kristen Lofton, Megan Martinez, Kimberly Bass, Sophie Hodson, Anthony Jerome M., Jordan Nash, Kent Morton, Lala Thomas, Travis Anissa Hunter, Miguel Myers ATX, Jennifer Perez, Allison O'Neill, Carissa, TJ and Angie Bronson, Gabrielle Trevino, Spooky Mom, Applin Ontiveros, Karima Rhodes, Antonio Huerta, Kimberly Kleindienst, Will Brown, Sydney Smith, Osvaldo Soto, Bobby Holmes, Donna Eason, JD Rizak, Molly Gerhardt, Armand Spasto, Aaron Aguirre, Eggy, William Barry, Brittany Ramatar, Charity Oxner, Amanda Six, Mandy Rainwater, Jordan Roberts, Dylan, Melissa Sierra, Holly Bryan, Jordan Blevins, Liz Heath, Spencer Montalvo, Pancake the Panda, John Ramos, Michael Newding, Alexis Roberts, Dan Laveau, Itzy M, Gary Horton, Leisha Olivier, Kate Lamp, Carlos and Sydney, Jessica Hunter, Helena Rudder, Alan Johnston, Mariah, Livy Fun. Mandy M, Scott Troutman Wise, Towton Watson, Mozzie Bear, Brittany G, Dave Burke, Adrian Stakes, Daniel McGinnis, Nick Spill, Emma Hagel Kissinger, Valerie G, Emiliana, Brian Glass, CB, Taylor Santana, Will Lewison, Angelique, Smelly Poo Poo Head, Beth Bauer, Cookie, Esperanza J, Jason Kyle OKC, Joshua Rumley, Danielle Peralta, Brandon, Nicholas Carter, Sawyer Reese Farr, Dr. Diva Loves Horror, Girl That's Scary, Cassandra, Andrea Simmons, Ashley Higuera, William and Zena Rush, Ryan Brom, Megan Ochoa, Laura Lassiter, Natalie de Guzman, Eileen O, Marissa E, Sydney, Henry F, Megan M, Strangely Sarah, Christy Beck, Nancy and Andy, Amanda Lopez, Andy Terrell, Jason Hanavan, Abigail Spitzer, Katie K. Erica Morin, Cameron S., Nicole Stewart, Tris Wynn, K.87, Mariah Jensen, Carrie A., Lonnie Lono, Powell, Kayla E., Maggie H., Fernando Dominguez, 
Murder Stina, No Thanks Tom Hanks, Kevin McGonagall, Kristen Marcy, Ori 81 Bariqua, Look Like That One Girl, Bog Boy, Felnez 63, Alita Pui, Probably My Jugs, Kate Thackeray, Wade Pack, A Lizard, Bay J, Jay Rich, Jen Lasseter, Topher Williams, Elena Mettler, Neil Chesson, Valerie Kay, Christy Lee Kruger, Professor of Humanities, Laura McCarricker, Naomi, Josh Smith, Autumn Green, Jess L, Heather Santiano, Abby Kopp, Crystal 831, Cassidy Carruthers, Skank Sinatra, Morgan Alexander, Tony Osteen, Julie Fredborg, Rihanna S, Daniel Taylor, Anna Kate, Heather Ortiz, Jen T, Kim H, Dana Cook, August, Vengeance Spirit, Ernest Acquisition, Sam J. Green, Kelly Glazyface Mac, Cindy Palmer, Jenny May, Zoe Marie, and Glittery Fab. Thank you all so much. Yes, thank yeah. you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you all, and we hope you snow it. Aw, good. <laughs> uh, until next time. <laughs> <laughs>